Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. This is Yowie Central. Welcome to the show. I'm Sarah. Here at Yowie Central, we explore the latest on Yowie research in Australia. We hear Yowie witness testimonies and we talk to the seriously dedicated researchers out there. And because I've always been fascinated by all sorts of mysterious phenomena, we shimmy down rabbit holes galore. Paranormal encounters, UFOs, alien abductions, cryptid creatures, orbs, psychics, and anything else kooky and spooky. I'm back. Long time no speak. I had a fabulous holiday travelling up to the Gold Coast and back, staying in various Yowie hotspots, and of course, finally getting to hang out with my awesome Australian Yowie research team after two and a half years of talking on the phone. It was quite surreal meeting them in the flesh and I kept having to pinch them to see if they were real. Let me tell you, they are just as adorable in real life. I went out researching over two nights to Stickland Track with the boys where they captured the amazing thermal camera footage of two Yowies a year ago. And while it was raining and while we didn't have any discernible Yowie activity those nights, (laughs) it was actually spine tingling just being there. It was very exciting and a really special moment for me to be out with the boys in the dark, in the forest, 
uh, with our thermal cameras and whispering away and listening for activity and it was just the most exciting, fantastic time for me. And I'm so grateful to all the team for taking me out on the Friday and the Saturday night. It was a really, really special moment. Massive thank you to Dean, Buck and Gary for making me a Plaster of Paris copy of the 14-inch track that Gary and Shannon found at Shannon's Place in Beachmont. And to Dean for being my Gold Coast Hinterland tour guide and taking me to the site of the legendary Witheran Truckee sighting and to Ormo where he had his terrifying sighting and basically all over the beautiful mountains that run to the west of the Gold Coast and where there is so much Yowie activity. Flyboy and I stayed the night in our caravan at Hickey's Falls near the Pilliga in New South Wales, site of a, a legendary Yowie sighting. Uh, we stayed at Deepwater in New South Wales, another renowned area for Yowie activity, uh, Wedding Bell State Forest near Coffs Harbour, and not far as the crow flies to Bongle Bongle National Park where there was another really terrifying Yowie sighting where a woman was chased by a Yowie. She was driving in her car with her little dog and uh, in the middle of the night and noticed a Yowie chasing her, starting off on all fours, but then it reared up onto two legs, looking in the car window at her while she's driving at 90 kilometres an hour. And then it leaped up over her car and ran off onto the other side. My dear friend and guest on the show, Jazz, took me for a walk through the Bongle Bongle National Park and because she also happens to be a talented artist, also made me a miniature sculpture of me out Yowie researching in the bush. It is absolutely gorgeous and I love it so much. Thank you so much, Jazz. That's really special. All in all, after the challenging, and by challenging I mean totally shitful, beginning to my year, I was in desperate need of a change of scenery and some good times. So this holiday delivered the goods and I'm back energised, enthusiastic and excited to bring you some absolutely fascinating shows. My very special guest today is the legendary Gary Opit. Author, naturalist, researcher and educationalist on a broad array of subjects, particularly on cosmology, geology, geography, anthropology, ecology, zoology and botany. He's also a cryptozoologist. He's an Australian wildlife expert and a wildlife talkback radio broadcaster, host of the long-running ABC North Coast local radio show in New South Wales, where he helps people identify any and all wildlife they come across, whether it be from tracks, vocalisations, scat or photos of the actual critter itself. Gary has long held a fascination for the beings we call Yowies and also for the little hairy fellas that we sometimes call Junjadi. So today we're covering historical reports of the hairy man, as well as Gary's thoughts on dogman, his own experiences of Junjadis and Yowies, the origin of some of the names that we use to refer to these beings in Australia, how the Yowie possibly came to exist in Australia, and so much more. Gary has 
vast amounts of knowledge on so many subjects that it's like having a history, zoology and wildlife lesson all in one. I so enjoyed speaking with him and I really hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Here's Gary Opet. Well, I'd love you to share some of your expertise uh, and research and investigation that you've done over the years with our hairy friends. And uh, I thought my Yowie Central listeners would love to hear some of that incredible breadth of knowledge that you have. Yeah, I can certainly give you a detailed understanding of the situation. That would be amazing. Where would you like to start? You mentioned in your email that um, that we could potentially talk about uh, the published history of the Yowies, the regional newspapers that, that uh, we have documented re- reports and articles on Yowies. So do you want to start there? Yes, I'll start with that. Uh, so the... Uh, the earliest reports uh, of uh, of an, a large unknown gorilla-like, perhaps we'll say gorilla or hairy man-like uh, reports, was published in a newspaper in uh, uh, 1829. I can actually read you exactly what was what was written, and of course. Uh, this has been determined by various researchers over the years who have been very interested in uh, the, the, these reports of, of unknown animals. It's a sort of side science almost called cryptozoology. And cryptozoology uh, was, uh, the name was created by a, a French zoologist by the name of Bernard Hoovelmans. Uh, and he wrote a wonderful book entitled On the Track of Unknown Animals. Um, and uh, that was when I was a young, when I was a teenager um, or, or in my early days, that was a really interesting uh, account of animals around the world that had been reported by um, uh, Indigenous people. But... Uh, uh, were still unknown to science. And so, of course, the most famous of those, of course, the um, the lake monsters, large animals um, described, observed in lakes all over the Northern Hemisphere, certain particular lakes. Uh, Loch Ness Monster is, is most well known, of course, and uh, but known by other uh, names. Um, perhaps gigantic eels. No one's been able to really determine what those animals are. But uh, And then, of course, uh, the um, uh, unknown uh, human-like species uh, covered in hair and uh, originally scientifically named Homo troglodyte uh, by Linnaeus when he created the, the uh, <laughs> zoological uh, uh, classifications of animals on the planet and it is described as like another species of human um, known to live in caves and in forests and uh, very large and hairy. And, of course, the most famous of those today, originally in the year, of course, they were 
known as wood houses and things like that, and different names like that. But of course, in in North America and Canada and, and northeast uh, northwestern United States, they were known by the indigenous people as Sasquatch. And then I think it was the 1960s that um, the, the term Bigfoot was applied. And uh, and so interestingly enough, an animal very similar to Bigfoot, whatever Bigfoot is, and the uh, um, there's been vast numbers of reports of these. Um, of these Bigfoot, of course, in North America or Sasquatch. I, th- it was, I think it was Grover Krantz, a, a zoologist in, uh, in Washington State, I think he was. He studied the, the footprints um, in, in that locality and they had very distinct dermal ridges because the, the footprints were found in, in very fine um, mud that preserved when the plaster casts and photographs were taken. Um, it preserved the... the uh, the dermal ridges, which is the same thing like the, the fingerprints or finger marks, as they're also known, you know, and, and toe marks, the dermal ridges of the skin. And so he he actually sort of scientifically named it after that. He believed it was most likely um, a species known only from the fossil record as Gigantopithecus, uh, which is only known from like half-million-year-old teeth and the jawbone found in China. Um, it was the largest of all the of the primates, and was uh, you know stood uh, two plus meters tall, and uh, you know a meter across the shoulders, and a, a, a sagittal crest on the head generally, and so it was believed that um, uh, uh, you know he scientifically named it that, that, that it's most likely Gigantopithecus, that's, because that's the only known giant ape uh, in the fossil record, and so. He said, this looks like the, the footprints of a bipedal animal, uh, just like a human, but um, might not actually be human because there's other bipedal great apes. So the gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans can all walk for a short periods of time on their hind legs. And uh, so so he scientifically named that uh, Gigantopithecus blackii. Uh, and then I forget the um, subspecies Americana or something or other, I forget exactly. Uh, and so that's what we may be dealing with. We don't really know. But in a, uh, and of course, um, uh, the yeti uh, is very likely the same animal. And uh, uh, so, uh, in Australia, uh, there were reports of similar animals. Uh, but these were published in newspapers. There's about 32, I believe, articles written in newspapers. Uh, mainly from uh, inland New South Wales and uh, south coast New South Wales and Victoria, but also um, in Queensland. And and so it sounds as if we have a similar animal living here. Of course, the majority of, of people and, and scientists, of course, zoologists, don't believe it can possibly exist because we have no physical evidence of it whatsoever. However... Uh, uh, we've got vast numbers of anecdotal evidence, and when you when you compare those anecdotal evidence over time and space, um, you f- you find um, very similar descriptions of very similar b- behaviours and very similar vocalisations, uh, as if the animal actually exists. But of course, there's no physical evidence whatsoever. In other words, we don't have a body of one to, for for zoologists and, and other scientists to study. And so uh, it's regarded as, as mythical, 
which is fair enough because we don't have any physical evidence. However, when you then compare the reports of Yowies, uh, uh, as they're known primarily in Australia, then uh, 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 with other reports that come in of unclassified animals, you know, you receive reports of of black panthers, of American pumas or mountain lions, uh, of of, of a, 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 a leopard-sized carnivorous marsupial that, that perhaps could be um, the animal known from the fossil record, Thylacoleo uh, carnifex, the marsupial lion. And, and that's about it. Uh, and there's no reports coming in of dragons or unicorns or or, or, or any other mythical animal or any other sort of animal that one would imagine people would perhaps in, in some sort of hallucination or delusion think that they're seeing. <laughs> no reports of dragons in the sky or in caves. And no reports of, of, uh, 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 of other mythical animals. Only these same animals again. And, of course, have to include the, the known um, species, the thylacine, thylacina sinocephalus, the generally known as Tasmanian tiger, uh, uh, and even though it's supposed to have gone extinct by about 1936, once again there's been hundreds of reports uh, in Tasmania and, and uh, throughout Australia and the island of New Guinea even, which has always been part of Australia, uh, reports of an animal that fits the description of the thylacine. So we can only come to the conclusion that these anecdotal eyewitness reports um, refer to very rare animals. Uh, all of them are carnivores in that if they were, any of them were herbivores, like if the um, Yowie was a, a, a real gorilla-like animal uh, and a herbivore, or primarily herbivorous, then we'd know all about it because you'd see the damage from it feeding on vegetation. And, of course, if you're a herbivore, you could eat large amounts of food and uh, and then, of course, you'd defecate, so you'd find their scats lying about. But with um, predators, uh, they're more easily able to conceal themselves because they're all ambush predators and so they're naturally cryptic animals or hidden animals, like they're not easy to detect in the environment. And they also have very large territories because they have to in their territory has to be large enough to include... Um, a sustainable population of prey species, and in Australia that would primarily be, um, of course, besides feral introduced animals, kangaroos and wallabies and and uh, uh, possums and bandicoot, koalas and bush rats and, and quolls and what have you, wombats or whatever. And so you may only have, as it is with, say, Siberian tigers, which are one of the largest carnivores, um, they have territories of, I think it's something like 200 square kilometres for one family, something like that. Wow, if, that's huge. Even our spotted tail quoll, I read, and that's um, our largest known carnivorous marsupial uh, on the Australian mainland. And, of course, it's it's um, generally a, a reddish brown with, with white spots, including spots on the tail, hence the name spotted tail quoll, carnivorous marsupial related to the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger and the Tasmanian devil distantly. The, the spotted aquala needs a territory apparently of 100 square kilometres. Uh, that's what I read once. I find that astounding. But anyway, that's the, um, the, the that's what apparently has been um, discovered by uh, researchers into the animal. And uh, and I know myself, ha- having been interested in uh, uh, the environment and the identification of plants and animals since I was a child, 
uh, and always kept my eyes out for um, spotted tail quoll in particular because it was one of the more interesting of our native animals being a carnivore uh, and a rarer animal. I've only encountered it like twice on the Australian mainland after about you know, 50 years of um, fauna and flora surveys and ecological assessments and, and what have you. Uh, and I encountered it uh, uh, several times in Tasmania during a one-and-a-half-year one stay, and, uh, uh, and particularly during a, a couple of months sped on the, uh, uh, the Gordon River and, and, and uh, Lower Franklin River in, the, uh, in, the, in 1980, 82, 83. So, you know, a difficult animal to detect, and that's only an animal not much bigger than a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so the, the first report that we have um, came from a Captain Peter Cunningham, who was a Royal Navy surgeon, and he wrote a book two years in New South Wales, which was published in 1827. And, and so Cap- Captain Cunningham heard strange cries echoing through the mountains, and the Awabakal Aboriginal people told him that they knew this animal as a puttican. So puttican, P-U-T-T-I-K-A-N, puttican is the original name for the Yowie. Uh, and they described it as a, a, a fearsome animal that resembled a tall man with a hairy body and a long male and very tough skin so that um, spears would not pierce it. And that it, was, it, was, it roamed by night, it was nocturnal, uh, but they kept this animal away from them, but with the use of fire. Uh, and, and years later, um, I talked to an Aboriginal elder, many years later from when that was printed, obviously, um, uh, who described the initiation that he went through um, and encounters with, with the animal. Um, that, that, of course, knew it from a, as a different name because it was in southern New South Wales. But anyway, so that was 18, 1827. Then in 1830... Alexander Harris um, wrote a book <laughs> in which he recorded Aboriginal knowledge of the forests and the animals to the north of Newcastle in the 1830s. And the public book was called An Emigrant Mechanic, Settlers and Convicts, Recollections of 16 Years in the Australian Backwoods. So, and he said that, that a great tall animal like a man, much greater than the human stature and covered in hair, um, makes a frightful noise as it wanders alone at night. So there's another description. Then uh, the next one was in 1841 in the Melbourne uh, Punch newspaper, 1841, uh, and it published an article with the title An Australian Gorilla. So this is the first... Only the second name this animal's been known on. So the first name it was published as Puttican and the second name was Australian Gorilla. Uh, and, and the Melbourne Punch states, an animal has been seen in Queensland answering to the following description. Height about five feet, slender proportions, arms long, legs like human being, only the feet about 18 inches long with long toes. The muscles of the arms and chest being well developed the back of the head straight with the neck and body, but the front of the face projected forward with monkey-like features. So there's another description, and that's it, the first description of the Australian gorilla. And, of course, the majority of the population having almost no interest in the natural environment and being entirely involved with, of course, raising families and trying to make a living, uh, you know, have almost no knowledge that this animal has been described again and again. And so then... 
the next report was 1842 in the Australian New Zealand Monthly magazine, which said that the the, the natives of Australia believed in a, a, a very large animal with an ape-like appearance. And uh, the, the, article, the article in the magazine stated that there has there, uh, uh, there has long been amongst Australian uh, naturalists a contested point as to whether or not an animal as the Yahoo existed. So, so he's, that's the third name now for what the animal we now refer to as the Yowie, the Yahoo. And uh, now the Yahoo was described in Gulliver's Travels in, in his fictitious book about a, a, a survivor from a shipwreck who was cast ashore on an island which was actually Kangaroo Island by the uh, longitude and latitude in that, uh, that the, uh, the book describes, uh, Kangaroo Island. And they described uh, the, 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 the survivor of this um, expedition, uh, of this um, shipwreck, um, discovered um, big, hairy, human like animals that, uh, that were known as Yahoos. But of course, most of the book is obviously fiction with um, little, with giants and little people and what have you. But just interesting. But um, being a, a popularly read book at the time, um, when when uh, the British people began um, dis- um, dis- describing encounters with with a big, uncouth, sort of hairy, human-like like individual, um, then the uh, the name Yahoo immediately came to mind. Then the next report was in 1844 by Mrs. Charles Meredith, and uh, she she wrote in a, uh, a book notes and sketches of New South Wales during a residence in the colony from 1839 to 1844. The Yahoo lives in the tops of the steepest and rockiest mountains, which are totally inaccessible to all human beings. So that's one of the most interesting reports now. Um, and once again, it's known as the Yahoo, and it's now um, ever seen all of the reports, um, or, or, or some, or, or some of them, describe the animal living in, you know, in mountain forests. And you would imagine, from the makeup of the animal, uh, the, the morphology or physical features of an animal uh, tells you exactly how it lives. So obviously, if it's a streamlined animal, like a dolphin, it lives in the sea. Uh, and, and if it's a long-necked animal like a giraffe, you know the, the body shape shows you that it feeds on grass, on, on leaves, and the tops of trees, hence a long neck, etc. And all the animals, and you look at their feature and tell you instantly if they're herbivore or carnivore, and whether they live on in deserts or plains or forests or in trees or whatever. So this very large, powerfully built animal wouldn't need to be so large if it was say living on the seashores or or, or living in the in the in flatlands or something or other um because the body sh- shape and plan the morphology shows that this is a, like an escarpment dwelling animal an animal that's taken advantage of an environment that uh, is inaccessible to most of the other animals and um, you know you can have treetop animals like possums and koalas living on steep cliff sides and, and other uh, 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 boreal animals. But for terrestrial animals, you know, besides little paddy melons uh, and, and bush rats and, and snakes and various things, lizards, um, there's very few animals, rock wallabies, of course, but they're more in open, rocky, inaccessible mountains because they need to feed on grass. So it seems like the animal primarily lives on escarpments uh, and that's where the majority of the animals would be. 
and of course, um, the animals that we encounter these days have actually moved down from the escarpments. It would appear from the reports because, um, for instance, the Bunjalung people um, in the land of which I live in uh, northeastern New South Wales, they have uh, a, a Dreamtime stories, uh, in other words, historical accounts um, uh, carried by mouth for, um, for the last periods of time. And they talk about a, a great battle where where uh, these um, the hairy forest joint human-like creatures increased in numbers, numbers and, uh, and, and drove the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people, well, of course, the the, uh, the the Aries could be regarded also as Indigenous people, but anyway, drove um, Homo sapiens, our species, back uh, away from the mountains and, and into the countryside. And that then a couple of um, cultural heroes led a campaign to drive the these um, animals, and, and sometimes described as Chorawara, different language groups have different names for them, back into the mountains. So once again... Um, there we have the Yahoo or, or Putican or Australian gorilla living in the mountains in land that is totally inaccessible to all human beings. Then um, the next report was Sydney Morning Herald in 1847, uh, and it says that the Hunter, Hunter River, um, and once again we've um, you know Hunter River is probably in, in the um, the mountainous section of the Hunter River headwaters. The reports of the age would lead us to classify the bunyip. Um, the bunyip, uh, the word bunyip came from Victoria, uh, and uh, was referred to as a, a large seal-like animal. That, that um, one language group of, of indigenous people described uh, this animal with the word bunyip, and so that caught on. A bunyip was then used for any unknown animal, large unknown sort of hairy sort of animal, whether it lived in the water or lived on the land, uh, and. Uh, uh, and so it said um, at the Hunter, Hunter River, the reports of the natives would lead us to classify the bunyip as with the carnivorous species. In this locality, it is called Yahoo uh, and is described as having much resemblance in form to the human figure but with frightful features. So there we have um, in this 1847 Sydney Morning Herald article uh, a statement that the Yahoo is actually the name um, from the, the the people of the Hunter Hunter River. Now, whether that's correct or not, or simply the people there have have adopted English uh, uh, speech and customs and what have you to a degree, and we're now using the same word when they talk to um, British people, as the British people, you know, would say to them, "Have you ever seen a Yahoo?" You know, and their real name probably Puttigan. Uh, right. So that's interesting. Then the next report, eighteen forty eight from the Angus newspaper uh, in Victoria of a huge humanoid swimming in the Umarala River. Uh, and that the people of the Lower Murray River also knew of an ape-like creature that had been seen swimming in the river and their name for it was Mullawonk. Mullawonk. So Mullawonk then is the next name for this animal, Mullawonk. Then the next report was from the Merrill, Melbourne Herald in 1849 and, and re reported the observations of a bunyip beside a lake on Phillip Island and described as being half man and half baboon. Of course, in those days, they probably didn't know about the gorilla or any other great apes, but anyway, they knew about baboons. And uh, 
And so here was um, obviously uh, another report of, of uh, a giant hair-covered sort of gorilla-like or human-like um, animal. And it, uh, they, they shot at it and it immediately dived into the lake. Then the next report was 1856 in, in, in um, Captain William Collins' autobiography, Life and Adventures of an Essex Man, uh, which he described an event that occurred in Port Hacking in 1856. And then he says, one afternoon, Google, he sent down two of his boys in an old log canoe to tell us that their father had seen a yahoo or wild man of the woods. It was about 12 feet high, they said, carrying a staff or stick 20 feet long. He warned us that we were not safe from the creature as it was seen close to our tents. On hearing a noise, he used his spyglass and scanned the shore till his eyes rested on the monster, which he declared was looking at my mate and myself as we gathered shells on the beach. We loaded our guns and took them to find the Yahoo. We certainly did find some remarkable tracks which had not been made by a human being. So there's a report of it at Port Hacking near Sydney. The next one also from the Sydney Morning Herald, um, states strange animal. The Murrumbidgee correspondent of the Sydney Morning Herald relates the following. For two years past, a strange animal has occasionally been seen near the Marilla Mountain. And very, various have been the descriptions given to the creatures so that we can have doubt, so that we have been doubtful of the reports and fancy the animal is nothing more though or less than a, an old wallaroo. The wallaroo is that, the male wallaroo is a very large, very dark-furred species of kangaroo that lives in, uh, in hilly country. As the morella is very wild and rocky and the wallaroo is found in such places, but in the last few days, two persons have seen the creature that has caused much alarm to a whole camp of stone breakers and road makers, 16 or 17 in number. It described as being three feet six inches high, standing on its hind legs. The forelegs or arms could about touch the ground. It was covered in shaggy black hair all over. It made a most horrible yelling when the parties rode in the direction of the rock it stood upon, showing a very fine set of teeth. It made a spring at, the, at its disturbers who put spurs to their horses and fled. The blacks in this district are aware of the existence of these animals and state that there were a great number of them some time ago. The place where this creature was seen is one of the wildest places that could be found on the northern line of the road at the back of the Marilla Mountain, or as it is generally called, the Merlot. This creature evidently belongs to the ape type. Has one of these creatures ever made its escape from confinement, or are there any such creatures in the country? If so, it is strange that they have not been spoken of before this. The utmost reliance may be placed upon the statement here put forward. So there, and that once again, a report. This one's only um, th three, half the size of, of the other ones, uh, but uh, and uh, but very aggressive in defending itself, and uh, once again being in a very rough, rocky place. So then, um, the next report came from uh, the Empire newspaper, Sydney newspaper, in 1871. And it says, the following particulars have been supplied to us by Mr. George Osborne of Illawarra Hotel, Dapto, concerning a strange-looking animal when, which he saw last Monday and which he believes was a gorilla. It is to be hoped successful means may be adopted to capture the animal alive if possible, as is quite evident one of the greatest natural curiosities yet found in the colony. Together with the interest 
attached to the peculiarity of this strange animal in human form, there is something very remarkable and suggestive in the fact that he should be presented, he should have presented himself to Mr. Osborne while that gentleman was going his rounds collecting the census. The following are Mr. Osborne's remarks concerning the animal. On my way from Mr. Matthew Reen's, coming down a range about a half a mile behind Mr. John Graham's residence at Avondale, after sunset, my horse was startled at seeing an animal coming down a tree. And when it got to within about eight feet of the ground, it lost its grip and fell. So now, once again, this is a, a government consensus um, taker travelling around. He's in very steep country. Uh, and and he's and this is at dusk, so once again they're said to be nocturnal and live in steep country. And here's another report of it, and climbing a tree. Um, my feelings at the moment were anything but happy. But although my horse was restless, I endeavoured to get a good glimpse of the animal by following it as it retreated until it disappeared into a gully. It somewhat resembled the shape of a man, according to the following description. Height, about five feet, slender proportioned, arms long, legs like a human being, only the feet being um, about 18 inches long, with long toes, the muscles of the arm and chest being well developed, back of the head straight with neck and body, front of the face projected forward monkey features. Every particle of the body except the feet and face were covered with black hair with a tan-coloured streak from the neck to the abdomen. So here's an identical description years later in another newspaper of the same animal. While looking at me, its eyes and mouth were in motion after the fashion of a monkey. It walked quadruped fashion, but at every few paces it would turn around and look at me, following it, supporting the body with the two legs and one arm, while the other was placed across the hip. I also noticed it had no tail. It appears that two children named Summers saw the same animal or one similar in the same locality about two years ago, but they say it was then only about the size of a boy about 13 or 14 years of age. Perhaps this is the same animal that Mr B. Rickson saw at the Corday River about five or six years ago. The query is, where did it come from? So once again, um, another description, another newspaper. Um, and the same description. Then in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1872 reported that a party of surveyors observed a bunyip at Coral Lake, Cowa Lake, that resembled a human being. It was covered with long dark hair and was swimming, rising out of the water so they could see its shoulders and then diving as if in chase of fish. So, so there's another report of the same animal also um, uh, living in water and being an excellent swimmer, as we had reports earlier from uh, uh, Philip Island and uh, and uh, in the Murray River. Okay, so then the next report was from the Grenfell Record and Lachlan District Advertiser in 1876, and that was also picked up by the Herald in 1877, entitled Discovery of a Live Yahoo!, the Milbourne Creek correspondent said the evening news under date November 11 writes as follows. Who has not heard from the earliest settlement of the colony the black speaking of some unearthly animal or inhuman creature that inhabited some parts of the wildest, inaccessible, rugged and sequestered haunts of rocky mountains and gorges in the colony, namely the Yahoo or Devil Devil or Hairy Man of the Woods? which to this day they stand in fearful awe and terror of. I, for one, sympathise with the superstitions or, or Aboriginal sayings of these wild and unsophisticated denizens of the Australian bush that their Aboriginal tradition of such unearthly mongrels or monsters have and do now exist, though so rare and not as yet often seen or believed in by white men. 
So once again, another really excellent newspaper report. And that's the, f- the first time we hear of it being called Devil Devil and also Hairy Man of the Woods, but also, of course, the Yahoo. And once again, it says that the animal inhabits the wildest, inaccessible, rugged haunts of rocky mountains and gorges. So it's not an animal of the flats. And as you said, um, uh, uh, who has not heard from the earliest settlement of the colony, the, of the indigenous people speaking of the animal uh, and, and how um, the white men don't believe in it because most of them are living in cities and on farms. And he continues, 14 days ago, not more than 10 miles from here, towards the head of the Lachlan River on Columba Station, in one of the most secluded and melancholy-looking spots imaginable, imperceptibly a terror of awe creeps over everyone that has to pass through this far and wide-known gorge or death chasm of the river. Well, a lad of the name of Porter um, was shepherding a flock of sheep near the dismal rocky bridge or gorge um, as so-called an inhuman, unearthly-looking being was seen by the lad coming directly towards him from the high, rugged and precipitous rocks. The dogs, on observing such an unknown monster, would not attack but became timid and crouched around the lad's legs, who became horror-struck with fear. He left the sheep to their fate and ran together with his collies for home. On relating the inhuman sight he had seen, which was not credited by the father and others at home, they, however, at last mustered courage and went to the exact place described, but could not find or see anything of the animal. On Saturday last, however, a fishing party of young men and women went to the Rocky Bridge waterhole for a night sport. So this is the same place. These waterholes are famed far and near for quality and quantity of fish. It is customary for those bent for good sport to remain for the night, and as a matter of course, a large fire is made. On the evening of this memorable day, two hours before sundown, the young men and some of the women went to set their lines, leaving one of their young friends to boil the billy and prepare supper. While engaged, the young woman was suddenly startled by observing a man who, as she naturally imagined at first sight, was one of their party coming towards the fire but on walking closer, discovered the appearance to be unsightly and inhuman, being in, bearing in every way the shape of a man with a big red face, hands and legs covered with long, shaggy hair. From fright, she became almost spellbound, screamed and screeched, but unable to run. The men, on hearing such unearthly cries, left their fishing lines and ran towards their comrade. On reaching the fire, the monster, the cause of the alarm, was only distant some 50 yards. On their appearing, it, it, on, on their appearing, it stood for a minute or two and turned away and made for the rocks. Two of the men armed themselves with a tomahawk and cudgel and followed this extraordinary phenomenon of nature for a short distance up the rocky and rugged mountain, when suddenly it turned and, around and stood viewing the men as they were approaching. They also halted being then about 60 yards from the object of terror, commanding a full view of his whole shape and make, which resembled that of a big slovenly man. The head was covered with dark grizzled hair, the face with shaggy darkish hair, the back and belly and down the legs covered with the hair of a lighter hue. This devil devil or whatever it may be called, doubled round and hurriedly made back towards the woman and the fire again. On seeing him coming, a fearful commotion among the females and a kind of supernatural terror among the men took place. In the meantime, before the reaching the camp, it sided away towards the inaccessible Rocky Mount. Once again, see, inaccessible Rocky Mount. The names of the two men who witnessed and took part in the scene are Porter and Dunn, well-known settlers on the Abercrombie and Lachlan rivers. 
Mr Lanes, another settler of the Lachlan, has informed me the other day that the neighbours all around organised a party to go in search of the, of the human monster and hunt him down, dead or alive. It is not many weeks ago that I record the remains of a similar animal or creature being found in the Walla Walla scrub. It is well known to the old settlers the last 30-odd years that the blacks will never camp within a mile of this death-like chasm of the Lachlan, though they come long distance every year to fish in the adjoining waterholes but leave before sundown to camp miles away. Whether this be the black man's veritable yahoo, devil, devil, or the, what the white men call hairy man of the woods, time and hope will now shortly tell. So they even found a body of the animal. But, of course, remember, these are, <laughs> these are uh, uh, settlers uh, and, and discovering new lands and um, talking with the Aboriginal people and... Uh, and, and and finding, you know, as I said, they found the remains of one of these animals. So they had the, as someone said, the owie can't exist because the remains have never been found. But in fact, they tells you the remains were found. Yeah. But what are they going to do with it? They say, oh my God, look <laughs> at that horribly big, bloody, hairy, monstrous, bloody animal, like a giant, bloody wombat koala or something or other. Let's get back home. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame they didn't have the, the, the resources to preserve it somehow. Well, no, I mean, you find an, a dead animal rotting away that looks like a big, hairy something or other, obviously not a person, and you just find a big, hairy thing, and, you, you know, like, I mean, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 probably, the, the stench of the thing rotting away and, uh, uh, you know, and all covered in thick fur and obviously too big to be a koala or a wombat or a kangaroo, the only other sort of fur-covered animals, um, and this thing is obviously very big, uh, and so they go, you know, let's get the hell out of here, you know, because they're not thinking, oh, we're going to discover a new animal. Uh, they're not interested in discovering new animals. They're interested in um, raising families and surviving, you know, in, yeah. on their farms. Yeah. So, Gary, well, what's your take on? I had read, um, particularly with with the Pudikin, that yeah. some of the reports say that they had backwards facing feet. What's your take yeah. on that? And that look. That's reported all over the world by Indigenous people. Um, so some groups of, of uh, Indigenous people in different places in, say, North America and South America and I believe Asia as well would often would often describe the animal as having backward-pointing feet. Uh, but I think that was simply an example of the, of the terror they felt of this animal because this is a big carnivorous from the descriptions, animal that inhabits um, rugged country, um, so it's relatively unknown and it's quite rare, as a carnivore would be, because you can only have so many carnivores, the numbers of prey animals available. Uh, And so when they found the footprints coming towards their camp, say, they would prefer to believe that it was walking away. <laughs> I, I can understand it, why. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think we'd be fairly positive that no animal, you know, sort of would have its feet around the wrong way because obviously it would be unable to to um, uh, <laughs> to, to um, uh, move across the ground. Yeah. So, so I'd, I'd I'd say the only thing we need to, because. The anecdotal reports, you simply look for the data within it. So you're not interested really in, in you know, anything that's sort of unusual or whatever, like it suddenly grew wings and flew off, we think, or something. Well, you know, it's obviously someone delusional or whatever. That, um, what are the common threads? And once again, well known to the Indigenous people who lived here for, you know, 80 plus thousand years, 
always described um, mainly uh, living in, in, in rocky environments. Even that Sydney Port Hacking one, I mean, it's all sandstone cliffs and inaccessible mountains all through that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and um, somewhat human-like, covered in, in hair, uh, moves around primarily at night, uh, usually only seen as a single individual. And I would imagine that these individuals are probably young males because if you ever look at, at roadkill, um, you know, wallabies, kangaroos, koalas and bandicoots, and uh, as I've checked every roadkill I ever came across to make sure to see if there was a joey surviving in the pouch or whatever, and nearly every individual I ever encountered um, was a young male, and that's to be expected because... In, in most of our mammals, like um, koalas, say, um, and kangaroos and wallabies, the females stay with the, with the mother or, 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 and eventually um, settle on a, a territory close by, whereas the males disperse long distances and so most likely to be run over by cars, etc. Because they've got to find their territory away, or far away from their father this is obviously for animals that are territorial and koalas of course are extremely territorial and so this animal is probably extremely territorial so it's most likely that the individuals encountered are always young males and in fact some of them are only like as i said um you know not much more than a, a, a meter and a half high so we could probably um uh, imagine that that's probably referring to a teenage uh, yowie, or whatever the animal actually is, uh, and since it, its behaviour and, and physical features uh, are somewhat similar to the animals described, observed in the, in Asia, like the Chinese yeren and the and the uh, and the uh, Himalayan yeti and and the many other names for it, and the and the Sasquatch and the many names for that animal, Bigfoot. Um, it, it all sounds somewhat like the same animal. It may not be. But um, and then young males would be dispersing. Now, of course, the problem we have in Australia is to be expected in Asia, say, in Vietnam, there's reports uh, in the high mountains that are relatively undisturbed of um, of a very similar animal, <laughs> and and it's um, and as in uh, the Caucasus, uh, where there's reports of of a female actually being captured and a male captured at one time. And so um, it's generally been thought that um, they could possibly be describing surviving uh, Neanderthals that only went extinct our nearest our nearest um, cousins uh, somewhere between 20, 30,000 years or 40,000 years, something like that. And then you could expect the, the Yeren and other animals seen in Siberia to also possibly be Neanderthals or some other relic humanoid but uh, and it's well known from fossil sites in Java that Homo erectus, of the previous species to us, um, uh, penetrated all the way down to uh, 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 Java and also across to um, the island of Flores, which mm -hmm. is onto the the Australian side of the Wallace Line, the deep channel of water that divides the Southeast Asian animals from the Australian animals. So the Australian animals are all related, and the Australian plants are related to the animals of South America and some plants in South Africa. And we know that the Australian animals evolved and the Australian plants and our ecosystems evolved on this, the ancient supercontinent of Gondwana, which consisted of, of uh, South America, Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, and then 
Africa and Madagascar at an earlier period and, and even India, and they were land dominated by marsupial mammals and also monotremes, the platypus and echidna, uh, whereas the Eurasian animals and North American animals having evolved um, very um, very rapidly over vast periods of time into the whole array of um, Eurasian animals never reached Australia except for us, our species, Homo sapiens, and with the original Australians. And then the dingo um, brought over about three or 4,000 years ago. And millions of years ago, Asian cobras uh, and Asian rodents reached Australia. It must have been probably drifting on um, uh, big patches of vegetation torn from the river mouth by uh, tsunamis and cyclones and earthquakes and stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, and arrived on the Australian north coast because we've got a whole array of native rodents and, and all of our venomous snakes, in fact, all of our snakes are, are all descended from Asian animals. But very few Asian animals, um, except for, for rats, no large Asian animal got across except for people uh, and then eventually dingoes. Uh, so that's why Australia doesn't have uh, elephants and rhinos and deer and monkeys and squirrels, all of the Asian animals, cats. Um, we have these unique uh, ancient Gondwana land animals. So, so there's two possibilities for the Yowie, uh, and that is that it's actually a, a surviving giant megafauna species, uh, a pouched marsupial um, ape-like animal or a marsupial gorilla-like animal, or it is in fact um, this gigantopithecus Gigantopithecus blackii that um, was known to have um, been the largest um, primate in in this Asia and Southeast Asia, and is now known to be related to the orangutan. So it was basically a giant uh, orangutan-like uh, animal, uh, and one would expect that it was herbivorous, but it, perhaps it was entirely carnivorous. I don't really know, but um, it's often regarded Gigantopithecus as like a giant panda eating bamboo, but um, we don't really know. And uh, and the reports uh, of these animals, the Bigfoot, the Australian Bigfoot, and the, the Yowie or Yahoo or Australian Gorilla, Hairy Man of the Woods, um, it sounds very much like uh, the Bigfoots around the world, etc. So it could very well be Gigantopithecus. But how would it get here? Well, it, it could only get here one would imagine the same way rats and snakes got here in that um, a family uh, over millions of years of their existence or hundreds of thousands of years at least in say, you know, in Southeast Asia when it was one land mass, remember, it wasn't a group of islands until after the sea levels rose about six and a half thousand years ago or so. One land, big land mass covered in rainforests and, and savannas and, and uh, so uh, a huge chunk of of uh, a river mouth containing rainforest um, uh, swept out the sea by uh, a, a tsunami um, as, a, as occurred with people, you know, from Sumatra in the Boxing Day tsunami that, that, that hit oh, the, yes. uh, the west coast of Southeast Asia yeah. and, of course, the east coast of India. If such a thing occurred and over hundreds of thousands of years, there would be a possibility of such a thing happening eventually. Uh, and then a... Uh, uh, floating out to sea uh, 80 to 100 kilometre or more, especially when during the ice age was happening and so the sea levels were much lower and they said it only had to drift about 80 kilometres, I believe, from Southeast Asia to um, to the 
say, the Northern Territory beaches, uh, it would come ashore and uh, you can imagine a, a species of, of giant ape-like creatures um, marooned on a big raft of, of rainforest logs, you know, trees, surviving over you know, many days, um, feeding on all the other animals that had been stranded in this huge pile of, of debris and then surviving long enough to hit the Australian mainland and then move off into the forests. So that's the two possibilities. And both possibilities are, are, are possible because there's been descriptions of the animal as having a pouch <laughs> and oh. a young in its, in its pouch on the abdomen um, that looked like a, a, a little black person, um, a black-furred joey, uh, or look like a monkey or something uh, in the in the pouch of the uh, the female, and this was reported in 1912, um, when pretty much the last report of the Yowie um, was published in the in the newspapers, because then the uh, uh, the world was heading for the First World War, and then the Second World War, uh, and so interest in animals in the bush disappeared, as there was then these enormous battles for survival in amongst the different nations of, of, of Europe and Asia. Uh, and so naturally, no one's interested in so someone seeing something big and scary in the bush. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't until the, the 1970s that um, I met Rex and Heather Gilroy mm -hmm. uh, from Katoomba, who, who had set up a, uh, a little natural history museum on Mount Victoria. And I visited the museum and... Being a naturalist myself, you know, I was particularly interested in his display, uh, and and Rex had been uh, the the um, the head of the entomology division of the Royal Zoological Society of New South Wales, of which I've been a member for 45 years, and and, and uh, so they'd have meetings in the Australian Museum, and Rex. Um, he wasn't a scientist, but I mean, the, obviously, the society's open to anybody who's interested in, in the environment and, and animal, animals in particular. And so, being interested in entomology, he he was the the head of that little entomology group and came down from the Katoomba, caught the train down and gave talks on the insects and showed pictures or bought specimens. One should imagine. And so he he um, so a, a, an amateur entomologist. Uh, he created a wonderful display of, of insects and with butterflies and, and beetles and, and the full array of insects and, you know, all scientifically named and identified and also geology. You know, anything that he could pick up that he would think and make a bit of a living uh, uh, and displaying his, um, the, the, the result of his passion for the natural environment. And, and so he told me that what began happening, you know, people visiting his museum... Um, would ask him for identifications of animals that they'd seen, and he would give them, you know, he'd tell them what, you know, what kind of animal they'd seen, and he began to receive lots of reports of a big hairy-like animal, which intrigued him, and so he studied the um, the research, and uh, uh, you know, because he was very interested in in books. Uh, and reading uh, about indigenous people and about the history of the Blue Mountains and other places, and he discovered that that the uh, <laughs> that a, 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 a anthropologist uh, uh, had written a, a scientific paper on the uh, language of the people in the Bathurst district, and in the, in that in that um, paper, he describes that the the um, the indigenous people. 
fear, a very large, uh, hair, hairy, uh, almost human-like animal that lives in rocky country uh, as the Yowie or, or Yahweh. Uh, <laughs> and so Rex and Heather Gilroy, they found this and that, they finally thought, oh my God, here's a name for this animal that's been so often reported uh, to us. And uh, and so uh, eventually they set up, they got very interested in cryptozoology uh, and they actually wrote to Bernard Hoovelmans, the, the French zoologist that had started the, um, th- this sort of science of cryptozoology. And it's sort of, it's not a pseudoscience, but it's only like a, a side science because it's just looking for, you know, it's just looking for, for, to try to work out the identity of animals that people have described, but which there's no evidence for them, like physical evidence, like bodies and skeletons and teeth and whatever. So, um, yeah, so he, so he then began publicising the name Yowie simply by describing what he, he had encountered. He actually encountered one himself. He described seeing uh, an animal in in in, in the uh, Gross Valley, I think it's called. Uh, oh, Jameson Valley, I've forgotten. Um, but anyway, Jameson, I think. But anyway, the, the the valley directly east of Katoomba in the Blue Mountains where the wonderful scenic railway runs down the cliffside, a famous tourist attraction. And uh, on the walk to Ruin Castle, which is an out, outcrop halfway um, from from uh, the, uh, the Katoomba start off to uh, Mount Solitaire, or Mount Solitary, I think it's called. Um, Ruin Castle, it's just a rocky outcrop. And while doing the walk, studying the environment and collecting you know, insects and what have you and geological specimens, he was startled to see uh, a, a, an individual walk past just below him in the forest that didn't notice him, <coughs> which looked to him like more like uh, Homo erectus, you know, it, just like it looked exactly like the drawings he had from the books that he'd, <laughs> that he'd bought and studied in libraries of... Um, of the evolution of humans and animals and stuff, being interested like I was in all of these subjects. So, yeah, so I found him like as a kindred soul. He'd collected all these wonderful reports and uh, he he he, uh, he was responsible for, uh, or they were responsible for the name Yowie being used. So it's entirely due to Rex and Heather Gilroy that we, that we really know about the Yowie. They started it all. Mm-hmm. And they had this wonderful... Um, cryptozoology museum, the only one that's existed in Australia at Echo Point in Katoomba, which I, I spent um, a lot of time at in uh, uh, 1981. A, a wonderful exhibition of all of the unusual things um, that he that he had reports of. Now he doesn't know whether the um, these things, all these reports, the different animals in you know, a giant goannas and black panthers and things like that. He's had the odd encounter. He was the first cryptozoologist to run around, or they were the first cryptozoologists to run around uh, and collecting reports and visiting places. And uh, and Rex even had a very close encounter with, with a, a black panther, which he believed from his view of it, close encounter with it at dusk when he was, I think, setting out trail cameras. And he described, he was positive that it wasn't a true panther that was actually a marsupial lion, that it was a big carnivorous marsupial animal um, that resembled a panther uh, and was black in colour, covered in black fur. So, um, yeah, so he wrote many um, articles. Uh, well, he didn't really... He wrote some articles, but, of course, many journalists in newspapers, particularly on the Gold Coast Bulletin and Sydney and, and the uh, magazines like Pix People that were very popular in the 1970s, 
um, they published accounts of his searches and, and asked him to contact him with the reports. And he got reports of all kinds of things, giant goannas and, and, and animals living in the, uh, in, in the Hawkesbury River that looked a bit like plesiosauruses or something, occasional reports of an animal that looked like it's got a long neck and flippers and, you know, sort of um, too long and too large to be a seal. Uh, and uh, so, of course, at the same time, he then received a great deal of uh, taunting, you know, that, um, you know, oh, these animals can't be real. We know all about it. You must be, you must mm-hmm. be fabricating it all. So he, he, he became a bit defensive, of course, because as you would, you're very brave, a very brave couple to, to, um, to publicly proclaim that there's animals that w- are th- still moving around in the environment that we haven't identified. Oh, yes. And, very and, brave. Uh, yeah, yeah, very brave. Mm. And of course, um, and received a lot of condemnation for doing so, as is typical of, of any sort of forward thinker who, you know, whether it was Darwin who discovered the reality of evolution and um, religious fanatics and others uh, uh, <laughs> enraged to think that we're that that we could that we're actually a species of ape, uh, even though um, uh, it's now it's now been discovered that ninety nine point point uh, ninety nine point point uh, uh, four percent of our DNA is identical to chimpanzee DNA. So we're <laughs> we're just um, <laughs> wonderful creatures as we are, but we're still. Uh, uh, a, a semi-aquatic chimpanzees, um, no matter what we call ourselves, and chim- <laughs> chimpanzees themselves are populations of symbiotic microbes living together, uh, and which we describe as animals, and which we are ourselves, you know, <laughs> symbiotic <laughs> populations of animals living as living as part of the living surface of the planet. There's only one living entity, and that's the living surface of the planet of which we're an integral part, and uh, <laughs> there's. The, the idea of individuals and freedom and, and people and anything, these are, are pure illusions. Um, <laughs> you can, we can only ever be part of the living surface of the planet. And uh, no matter how arrogant we become and think that we're godlike and independent from reality, we're part, <laughs> 100% part of reality. There's, no, there's only the community. The community rules. You know? yeah. Whereas individuals as, as leaves are individuals in a tree, the community teaches us to think community teaches us to read and write we can only ever have community thoughts you know our schooling process teaches us how our minds work and what we believe in and it doesn't teach us that yowies exist and so we don't believe in them gary i have i've spoken to people and i've listened to other reports of a creature that is a bipedal creature but similar to more similar to a dog-shaped head than uh, a human or the standard Yowie-shaped head. What, what's your take on that? Is it- yeah, now that's easy to identify as well. People don't have much of a knowledge of, of, of the, the forms of life that have inhabited the planet. And so obviously it's impossible to have a canine, a dog. You know, all of our dogs, of course, come from wolves and we mm-hmm. know what canines we have. We have wolves. Uh, and and uh, we have jackals uh, and uh, and dingoes are closely related, and all dogs are related. Then we have you know one other unique group of dogs, the, the painted wolves or African hunting dogs, or African you know African um, coloured dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there's very few people, and foxes, of course. There's a variety of foxes across the world, so they're the canines. It's highly unlikely that any canine would evolve to have a very primate 
um, shape morphology, you know, primate shaped body. Uh, um, so it's probably not a, a bipedal, a bipedal canine. However, anything's possible because uh, you, you would hardly, you know, only a couple of hundred years ago they found the platypus was completely impossible. <laughs> There's no chance of a, of a third mammal with a duck-like beak and poisonous spurs on its leg and laying eggs and and and, <laughs> and being a possibility. And of course it was and is, and they swim around in our rivers and well known and loved by Aussies. Um, so anything's possible because you just look at the array of animals that existed. However, it's more likely that and we, we can, it's best to go, try to identify anything. You simply go to what looks most familiar and what looks most familiar to what's generally now known as the dog man is the baboon. Because mm-hmm. you look at a baboon, if you see a baboon standing up on its hind legs, it's a perfect dog man, you know. It's got the head of a dog yeah. um, uh, and the body uh, of an ape. <laughs> but, of course, it's not a dog. It, it's simply the head. Um, the head shows you what kind of, um, what the animal feeds on, obviously. So if it has a dog-like head, you can be positive that it's not a herbivore. Otherwise, it would have a kangaroo-like head, say. Um, so uh, it's, it's known in the African fossil record that, uh, that there, were, uh, there was a species of giant baboon. <laughs> and I don't know much about this giant baboon. Uh, however, they, they definitely existed. <laughs> uh, and perhaps these giant baboons are what the, what the dogmen are that have been reported. Now, I don't, and I, I don't, I'm not one to um, um, b- uh, involve myself in belief systems. You know, it has to be this or it has to be that. And the majority of people, um, the culture that they were brought up in demands that they believe every word that they've been taught and, and to believe that there can be nothing beyond that, which is why there's so much warfare and, and what have you, because obviously if you're raised in, in the Middle East, you know, you're more likely to believe in, 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 uh, uh, in Muhammad yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and those cultural beliefs of Islam. And if you're raised in, in England, especially 100, 200 years ago, you're more likely to believe in the, in the in the belief of the Christians and the Judeans, of course, have their own earlier beliefs, and then of course you have the beliefs of the rest of the people across the planet, and uh, so most police police people uh, <laughs> uh, have very rigid outlooks on life, of course, and uh, you have to behave in this way, and you have to think in in, the, in this way, and you cannot possibly believe in anything that that you weren't already taught. But of course, these days, the population, especially the younger generation, they're, they're, because the uh, populations have now mixed in places like the, you know, the, the North America and Australia and South America and many other countries, we realise that everyone has these cultural beliefs, but we've gone beyond those to, to, to discover that there's actually uh, a, a commonsensical understanding of reality, um, which is generally referred to as science, and, and, that, and that everything is evolving and changing. A lot of people frightened of the word evolution, but the evolution simply changed. And see, most people there are frightened of change, but change continues to happen. And they try to cling on to, oh, I wanted things to be like when I was a child, when they first understood the world. But um, everything's moved on dramatically. And so people have a more, especially in Australia, more scientific understanding of reality. So you can then say, well, these dogmen, they most resemble giant uh, uh, giant 
baboons, uh, carnivorous nocturnal baboons. And once again, being a carnivore, unlike the mainly herbivorous or omnivorous baboons, um, wandering around the open, feeding slowly vast quantities of food to um, to be able to get enough nutrients out of you know insects and grass and plants and roots and nuts and things. If one species became carnivorous, and that happens again and again throughout throughout the uh, the families of animals, um, that animal will then behave completely differently and begin to look different. And so it may be more bipedal. The beauty about bipedalism and the reason we're bipedals is because it's more energy efficient. If you're walking on four legs, you're using up more energy than if you're walking on two. And, of course, the kangaroos and wallabies have the most efficient locomotion of all by bouncing, so they use almost no energy because they absorb the energy each time they hit the ground on two legs. So so um, a, a giant baboon, carnivorous species, um, would become nocturnal, um, very likely bipedal, uh, and would become uh, an animal that depended on prey species. So there'd be very few individuals compared to herbivores, just like any other predator, uh, and would be very cryptic because they're ambush hunters. And and so I have no idea whether whether um, dogmen actually exist. Uh, and, of course, uh, to begin with, I was sceptical, as, as I was with the Yowie, very sceptical, because I spent years um, identifying plants and animals in bushland everywhere in eastern Australia mainly and uh, never come across, always by myself or mostly by myself, uh, and in really remote areas where half the time I didn't even know where I was and I'd, you know, I was lost and I'd need... I had to use my compass to find my way back because it'd be, you know, long distances away from civilization, <laughs> or use the, the the position of the sun in the sky to find my way back. But I always had good uh, orientating skills, and um, uh, and never came across any sign whatsoever uh, of anything unknown at all, except in 1975, where I was in the in the mountain <clears throat> in the foothills of Springbrook. Uh, in the southeastern corner of Springbrook near the Queensland border, uh, and I was in very remote forests during a day's walk by myself, uh, and and uh, a series of powerful roars um, that were as loud as a lion, but definitely didn't come from any, any of the big cats because I knew all their calls, having spent years in the zoos working. You know, I always worked in wildlife parks and, and zoos and as a national park ranger, and so um, hearing these incredible roars I knew that we definitely had an unknown animal and something that was big and powerful uh, I didn't associate it with Yowies at the time uh, 1975 I was hardly aware of them but I had seen in 1969 a large carnivorous marsupial cross the road right in front of me I got a really close view of it and and, and it was the nearest that I could identify it to was marsupial lion Thylacoleo carnifex in southeast Queensland and uh, had re- read reports of, uh, of, of uh, a lens shooting one of these animals in the Gold Coast Bulletin uh, as a teenager. And uh, and years later, I actually saw the the animal exactly as he described it, crossed slowly and right in front of my car in the full headlights, mm-hmm. uh, but no way of proving that I, that I actually <laughs> observed it. So it showed me that there, there, there were unknown animals, predators, uh, Existing in very low, in very low, low numbers, were probably huge territories that you could almost never never um, encounter um, <coughs> surviving. So I thought maybe this was the roar of a marsupial lion. However, I thought 
how come it hasn't been heard before then? Uh, and, and then eventually the only descriptions that I found of, of roaring animals was um, the roars of the Yowies. Right. So, anyway, that's my convoluted description of what I think. The, the, the dog man is, how did I get here, though? They'd have to get here the same way as, um, as, as, as Yowies. In other words, so you'd have... Because uh, if you say, oh, there's a dog man in the forest, well, no one's going to believe you for one second. But... <laughs> but um, uh, uh, and who knows if they really exist? We don't know until we've got a body and we can study and go, no two ways about it, you know. <laughs> that solves the mystery. Uh, and finding the body of an animal like that, it's like trying to find the body of a spotted tail quoll or, or a, you know, or a dingo or something like in, in inaccessible mountain ranges, you know, like where you can hardly get through because where these animals seem to live. But so anyway, so a, 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 a giant carnivorous nocturnal baboon living in very similar way to, say, the Gigantopithecus, if it was also a nocturnal uh, carnivorous um, primate. Um, so there's t- two different species living in the same environment and, and probably dividing the territory up so they don't have encounters. However, my brother, uh, who lives uh, in... Uh, Limpenwood in in Upper Limpenwood in um, in northeast New South Wales, behind Mwilumbar. Uh he's a, a great experience uh, like myself in the natural environment, and he reported to me of hearing what sounded like a massive fight <laughs> between two two groups of animals that had different different voices, like different vocalizations. And they were banging rocks together, like his house sits on the edge of the rainforest, and a couple of hundred metres downslope to the south um, is is uh, undisturbed rainforest, and uh, and and a creek, Finch's Creek, running through the. He and I have um, you know explored the area thoroughly over about forty years or something now, and then not 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 many times recently, uh, and uh, and. He could hear two different animals at night, in the stillness of the night, vocalising, sort of one slightly up, up, up slope or, or up, up creek or up river from the other, and they were, they were grabbing boulders and throwing the boulders down onto the rocks. And he was positive from just from what he was hearing that one group had to be the Yowies and the other group had to be the Dogmen because they they had a different call together. Right. Um, but who really knows? He doesn't know. I don't know. But that's what <laughs> it, he's lived there for forty years. Knows all the plants and animals, and and, uh, and and he's actually he actually had an observation, and his son had an observation, uh, a close observation. His son watched for about five minutes from thirty feet away at six in the morning near the veranda of the house a dark furred yowie that just stood and looked at him before walking off. And John encountered one with a, a mate um, that while I was sitting quietly in the forest, uh, not too far from the house, um, <laughs> something walked walked heavily past them uh, nearby and then they shone their lights, their torches on the on it and, uh, and they had a very close view of a yowie from behind covered in brown hair as it pushed its way through the the forest on the edge of the cliffs. So once again, it uh, could be a possibility. We'll never know until we ever get bodies. Uh, and then they've heard the odd screaming call. One night they heard a call that sounded like 
once again, what's it like a murdered woman call, some high-pitched sort of screaming call. On very rare occasions, they've heard calls. And he and I examined... He heard also, he's heard very bizarre howling-like calls, nothing like a dingo. Uh, and, uh, and I've heard the bellowing of cattle coming up to his property from uh, coming up along the, the, the steep creek, Finch's Creek, and the sound from the cattle bellowing uh, gets becomes mutated, but it's still you can still tell it's from cattle, even though even though the sound is changed by it echoing up the up the up the valley, it can it can travel quite well on still nights. It has, you know calls of flying foxes and and roosters can travel kilometres uphill of the sound um, on very quiet nights. It's quite remarkable how 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 it travels the sound, but you can identify it instantly. So, so um, yeah, he heard these um, very bizarre um, howling like um, noises that they were definitely like, and that were coming from the rainforest from upstream. So he and I went and and uh, within the next three or four days had a look, and we did find what looked like impressions of of a big human foot like thing just in the in the leaf mold you couldn't be i couldn't be 100 percent sure however um i photographed a very interesting feature that i'd found before uh and that was uh of an animal that had been eating uh long horned or longicorn beetle larvae that that live in in timber uh, and had used elongated nails to tear the um, the larvae from its burrows uh, and and with no use of, of beak or claws or anything or biting or whatever because we do have other animals that feed on uh, such such insects uh, such as you know yellowtail black cockatoos mm-hmm. and also gliding possums but but this didn't look and it was, you know it was, this is under the rainforest canopy it's only a couple of meters above ground and, and I found a similar situation. When I was taken uh, uh, by a couple of researchers up to the Gymna State Forest, this is like 20 years ago now or something, mm-hmm. uh, and and we found uh, in about 500 uh, green wattle trees, so they're the small undergrowth wattles, uh, Acacia ororites from memory, and uh, uh, and in every one of these trees, uh, uh, some animal had been predating on these wood boring grubs. And there was, uh, it was always like low to the ground and very efficiently done. You could see where uh, it, it, several centimeters of of uh, the bark and then the and then the, the wood had been torn straight down with impressions of wood like finger thumbnails or fingernails around uh, the, uh, the the burrow of, of the wood boring grub as if it had been putting its fingernails in and maybe listening very carefully, and then it would very efficiently just tear down thin strips till it exposed the uh, the burrow, which might be, say, a centimetre into the wood, and then it, it didn't damage the... As soon as it exposed a bit of the, the, the burrow of these wood-boring grubs, they would must use its fingernail to hook the grubs out, and, and, and that was just beautifully done, and uh, and, and every, every uh, small... A wattle tree 
had had um, a wood boring grub extracted from it, only only one from every tree, and always about the same height, about a metre above the ground primarily. Yeah, so very interesting, and I couldn't imagine <laughs> what did that unless it was some kind of yowie-like animal. Yeah. yeah, I'm not quite sure. Exactly. Exactly. And so do you, do you, you've obviously heard of the Janjadi as well. Um, yes. Do you think they're the same? No, I think no, that's a separate, because I mean, I believe uh, that, that, that uh, the indigenous, uh, original Australians know exactly what's in, in the bush, you know, and to mm. say, to disagree with them um, is, is a lack of respect. It's be the same thing as as um, disagreeing with your, your teachers at school or what have you, or are trying to teach you about whatever re- reality or whatever, and you disagreeing, oh, no, that can't be possible sort of thing. I, I'm going to believe different to what you tell me or whatever. So the so the original Australians all say that um, when they arrived in Australia, and they have, they have stories about coming ashore, whether they arrived in Australia or, or, or virtually evolved in Australia, because Homo sapiens, that we know most closely related to Homo erectus, for a species to evolve, uh, uh, you need to have very few individuals surviving uh, and a lot of mutations going on, which is why echidnas have spines and why turtles have shells. Uh, you know, they, they wouldn't, they only grow such features, they don't develop their shapes for us of reasons of survival. And particularly once, um, so if you've got a new predator starts feeding on a platypus-like animal, say the echidna, which covered in normal hair, uh, a new predator arrives or evolves and begins feeding on it and eats them almost into extinction and you've got such a restricted gene pool that you begin to that you begin to, the offspring have more and more unusual mutations. And if any of those mutations are positive, like slightly spinier hair, so more likely to get away from the predator, uh, eventually you end up with um, spiny echidnas or, or with tortoises that have a, 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 flattened, a flattened backbone and sternum creating a, a bony case that makes it very difficult for them to eat them. And so the great success of the sea turtles and the tortoises... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Uh, in this area, uh, they call them Nimbinji uh, or Jimbin. Uh-huh. And depending on the names vary slightly between different uh, um, uh, uh, Bunjalung families. And, uh, and so uh, the town of Nimbin is named after the, the Nimbinj or ah, the Nimbinji. Right. Uh, uh, yes, and I used to be working in the national parks 
decades ago. And uh, I've, I've uh, always been very interested in the true Australians and the true Australian culture. Like, um, you know, English is a feral language. You know, um, our religions, European religions, they're feral religions. You know, um, we're, we're, we're feral. Um, <laughs> Because we didn't originate here, we came here and yes. we've multiplied and overrun <laughs> the place just like foxes and rabbits and cane toads. Yeah. I'm not equating humans with cane toads, of course, but <laughs> some of them could possibly like be equated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that we must respect the original people as you'd go if you go to the Middle East, you have to respect the people that live there. You go to Europe or America, where well, you've got to respect the local people and whatever they say goes, you know, because you're. You're an, an immigrant, or you're, you know, you're a, um, a, a or a visitor or something. Um, you got to, you should respect the, whatever the locals are doing and saying, whatever. And so the local, the true Australians are saying, yeah. Now we always had two species, and that they're protectors of the bush. They didn't refer to them as species, of course, because that's a, a more recent European comprehension of of dividing animals and plants into into, into different groups, but. Um, but but very useful in you know, as a whole zoological nomenclature is the whole classification is is by Linnaeus who who first the scientist who who first um, um, thought up this uh, modern way of identifying uh, the animals and plants that make up the living surface of the planet and so and so uh, yeah so they they say the two species and and they have different names for them and uh, they 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 say once again in with their different words um in southeastern queensland <clears throat> i'm just trying to remember the name that's used there the yurigir people from memory is it yurigir anyway um uh no yurigir so uh they say that the the yowie that they have a different word for it uh lives on the escarpments once again and is a very large strongly built hairy animal but another species lives primarily uh, at the base of such environments in other words they've divided up the the habitat as is normal amongst animals and they refer to it as a, a jungery one of their terms for it these jungery or nimbinjis as they're called here uh, about the size of a chimpanzee and i was talking to a national park ranger recently uh in a bunjalung man and he described how there have been encounters. They know the animal quite well, uh, and they regard them as protectors of the bush. They're not easy to see or encounter, uh, but they're uh, only about a metre tall, but otherwise look you know, very much like a, a, a small person uh, or like a very upright chimpanzee. They talk about their... Their, their parents or their grandparents being particularly familiar with these animals. This is before, as you can imagine, widespread clearance of the vegetation and, and farming by by um, Europeans or Eurasians um, all arriving and farming. In, in this area where I live, it was um, Chinese, uh, uh, were some of the, the earliest settlers. But anyway, so the indigenous people talk about these animals being regularly seen or occasionally seen and just playing around like unconcerned. They knew the people well and often they'd be in their house on the veranda. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, these are um, original Australians uh, in the early in the earlier and later days of European settlement uh, and uh, so living in houses, but usually in the bush, you know, little, little shacks basically. 
uh, and seeing the animals playing around and, or running around or, or foraging or whatever close to their house and, and very sacred to them as well. So, And they, the Indigenous people, of course, don't talk much to the... Uh, to the new immigrants, the new Australians, you know, us, the, the English and Eurasians and what have you, Africans, because they don't always get an opportunity to and uh, and because the newcomers uh, are more interested in their own survival and their own customs and beliefs than um, the customs of the original people, which we find everywhere. So like in North America, you know, you hardly hear about the indigenous Americans and the true true American culture. You only hear of the the Eurasian and, and, and African uh, uh, cultures that have come to dominate and the same thing with Australia. And uh, so, yeah, so um, they sound most like, uh, in the fossil record, Homo floresiensis, mm-hmm. uh, a, a well-known species that was only discovered recently, uh, as we know, in a cave on the island of Flores, a scientific dig by Australian anthropologists and paleontologists and, and the Indonesian um, paleontologists and anthropologists and what have you. And together they dug up a series of skeletons that they dug down of this amazing animal um, that's now been named Homo floresiensis, the Floresian man. And, uh, and this was an animal uh, that was... Uh, a size of a, of a chimpanzee was bipedal, primarily bipedal probably, uh, very human-like. Um, and the indigenous Floresian people talk about knowing them very well and having their own names for them and, and describing them, seeing them burying their dead on the beaches uh, and being encountered in caves and, uh, and uh, having them uh, coming and, uh, and stealing uh, food crops at night, you know, grabbing the odd sweet potato or what, what have you. Uh, and um, and so may have survived into a relatively recent times. However, the fossils, they were thought to be about 13,000 years old, but I think they've dated to them much older, maybe 50,000 years. But uh, And it was thought that these were pygmy homo erectus because on the island of Flores even though it was on the Australian side where you've got Australian plants and animals primarily uh, uh, <coughs> and such animals as the Komodo dragon which spread from Australia to the Indonesian islands of Komodo and Flores Rinka and other islands and then also little pygmy hip elephants <laughs> stegodonts um, so I'm not quite sure how tall they were. They might have only been a, you know, a metre or two metres tall or something or other. But um, they lived uh, on the island of Flores with a, a number of other giant, um, very large rodents and, uh, uh, and very large uh, uh, birds um, like storks or cranes or something. Uh, and and uh, so a whole array of wonderful animals, Komodo dragons and these little, little indigenous uh, uh, people, uh, uh, which we now know as Homo floresiensis, or the Hobbit, named after the mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings yep. um, books and the Hobbit book. Uh, little hairy humanoids, uh, in a closely related to us. Uh, uh, Latest studies have revealed that no, it wasn't. It probably wasn't a pygmy Homo erectus. Um, it might. It might be a pygmy version of an even more ancient animal. Or, uh, called Homo habilis, which is the first of the, of what we refer to as, as humans or men or people, homos. Uh, <laughs> uh, so 
Homo habilis. Before then, we had Australopithecuses, which were were, were um, uh, had the bodies of of, of men, uh, of people, say I should say, but um, uh, uh, but with a head very much more like a chimpanzee. And then the Homo habilis, all from Africa, had heads more like uh, uh, modern people. Uh, and then Homo uh, erectus was a much larger species, and then eventually Homo sapiens, and Neanderthals, and Denisovans, and a number of other species from the fossil records found all over Eurasia show that there were many species of different humans. Uh, and today, of course, we're the, the only known sole survivor. Uh, so, um, and also in Sumatra, there's um, uh, also a, a species of bipedal uh, small primate, and some believe it's a, a species of terrestrial orangutan. But anyway, um, hard to tell from footprints and, and, uh, and observations made by zoologists in the field doing fauna surveys and actually seeing these animals. So, so we have reports of them in Sumatra. We have reports of them in the island of Flores. Uh, and we also have reports of these from Australia, from the indigenous people, the original Australians, right across um, the northern half of Australia. So it sounds very likely that, um, and one would hope, that uh, uh, we, we actually have hobbits living in Australia, Homo floresiensis, that have that once again probably washed on to, across to the Australian continent in during tsunamis and earthquakes and cyclones and various things and uh, uh, and surviving uh, and once again would have to be primarily carnivorous um, you know uh, <laughs> certainly not herbivorous or we'd know all about them because they'd be like chimpanzees roaming about yeah. but these are also very uh, very quiet very um, uh, 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 skillful uh, and um, rare inhabitants of the bushland that the Aboriginal people said they exist uh, and which I've found footprints which I've photographed and published in the scientific journal, the Royal Zool- uh, the Australian Zoologist. Uh, 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 and, and I live in a locality that was known um, by the Indigenous people as uh, the, the place of the little people. Ah. And, and, uh, <laughs> and in fact... Um, we had a very unusual experience uh, on the Christmas before last where uh, one of our daughters and a partner were up here for Christmas and like most young people, they tend to stay up late. We'd gone to bed. But the next day they, they told us that, that um, while they were lying in bed before they fell asleep, they heard these... Because uh, our, our daughters have grown up with us. in the We live in the bush uh, Surrounded by nature reserve, thousand hectares of coastal bushland, and uh, and very isolated locality, and uh, uh, and they heard um, the sounds of two animals were communicating to each other very quietly, and then so they <laughs> they went out onto the veranda to see what kind of animal it was or what these animals were, uh, and one of the animals um, jumped was I was on the ground. Uh, and uh, my our daughter's um, partner Matteo, he was the one that primarily observed it, and he's also an artist, a wonderful artist. So anyway, he said it jumped from the ground onto the side of a, of a palm tree, and then up, and then jumped up onto the roof and stood on the roof on his hind legs, looking at us, 
And Mateo comes from Colombia. He's been in Australia for many years. So he grew up with with monkeys. So he was positive this was a monkey. And he couldn't understand why it didn't have a tail. And then it scattered off across the roof. So anyway, I was astounded. We were astounded. The rest of the family was astounded when they tell us that one of these animals was on our roof because I've seen no sign of it. And I spotlight every night. Every night I wander around looking, just spotlight, see what animals are around, mainly frogs, you know, an occasional insect. Very rarely you'll see a possum mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, or a tiny frog mouth or something. But um, just mainly identifying, keeping an eye on the frogs, what species are, what species are about. And, uh, you know, just for half an hour or something most nights and uh, wandering around in the forest and the orchard around the house. And uh, anyway, so he drew a wonderful painting of it. And I said, on the computer, because he's an expert like all the younger people mainly are with um, with their computer skills on their laptops, and uh, and he's an artist, and he created it and it looked exactly like a gibbon. And I said, but that's a gibbon you've illustrated. He'd never heard, he, can, he couldn't understand why, because he, <coughs> growing up in South America, he wasn't too concerned seeing a monkey, <laughs> and but he couldn't understand why it didn't have a tail, and because uh, all monkeys have tails, and so mm. I showed him pictures of gibbons. He goes, "Oh yeah, that's what it was like. Oh yeah, never didn't know they existed. You know, he knew about gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees, but he didn't know about gibbons, which are the smallest of the of the human-like apes that live in the in the rainforest of Southeast Asia, uh, and the biggest of which the Siamang gets to is about the size of a of a, a small female chimpanzee, perhaps. Yeah. But so anyway, so." He said, no, that was the animal that was on the roof. So he illustrated it. And, uh, and of course, I, I, we said, well, we've, <laughs> we've never seen anything like that. And you stay a few nights. And you see it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and, of course, we have no gibbons in Australia. We have no primates besides humans and maybe these um, uh, uh, Homo floresiensis and the Gigantopithecus. Uh, but... Um, and of course, gibbons certainly aren't nocturnal. However, so perhaps what he saw was one of these yeah. uh, Homo floresiensis, um, because it'd be unlikely that my daughter and her partner, because we're a very close family, would lie to us. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so, very, very, very interesting uh, observation. I've got the illustration. What can you say? You know, I mean, I find it. Almost unbelievable. <laughs> uh, yet, yet here we are getting all these reports constantly. Yeah. Like with, with Australian Yowie research, we get uh, we're getting reports in almost every day. We were yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, like, so I've had encounters, you know, myself. And the the first one, I was a national park ranger up in Lamington National Park in 1971 at O'Reilly's section. And one night, um, just be- it was the night before I got back, because uh, you need know, have a, a day or two off. Um, and it works like a, f- a five-day week, and and uh, uh, generally, and uh, <laughs> I got back, and the rangers are all in a kerfuffle because something had attacked the, the headquarters, which was just a little cabin with um, three bedrooms and an office and uh, a, a sort of kitchen dining area, and we had very little no other electricity. We only had like one electric line running to the house, so we had electric lighting on the inside of the house. We had no outside lighting. And all of our cooking was done with firewood. We had a big fuel stove and uh, <clears throat> we had a huge uh, wood pile uh, and uh, and, we, and all of our heating to, to have hot water, we had to uh, get a fire going under a big copper basin in the backyard and heat the water so we could use that to um, have a shower with. 
bucket in into a shower head and pull the cord and have a have a hot shower and uh, and all our cooking was done using firewood and a big fuel stove and we had a kerosene operated fridge and uh, and something and the night began thumping on the walls and then went under the house and threw out all the tools onto the lawn and this is in pitch blackness and then destroyed the wood heap and the wood heap was about four or five metres long, about a metre wide, about two metres tall, and uh, uh, great big logs that we'd cut from a, um, a fallen gum tree that fell across the road. And uh, uh, so they were like, <laughs> each one was like half a metre in size, and uh, we'd later break them up with the axes to use. And then uh, we'd ha- sledgehammered half a dozen uh, timber stakes uh, into the pointed timber pieces um, uh, about three metres in length and we'd hammered them about a metre into the soft basalt soil to hold the whole structure up. And we also supplied a bit of firewood to the campers <coughs> in 1971. There were very few visitors in those days, mainly bushwalkers, of course, uh, and people staying in the O'Reilly's guest house. And something had pulled out all the stakes and thrown all the wood away. And uh, so, you know, we were absolutely astounded. That was an impossibility, and yet it happened. And I asked the O'Reilly's, who I knew very well, because they were only 100 metres up the road, if they had encountered anything like that. Uh, and they they told me that, yes, the, there was a mystery animal that they have almost never talked about, but we had very loud, bellowing, roaring calls uh, that, that they only ever heard from one escarpment, uh, on the Stockyard Creek track when they'd take their cream, barrels of cream on horseback down to, to Kerry to sell, which was their only income <laughs> besides uh, a few people staying at their little guest house. Uh, and uh, uh, and they always had to camp halfway back <laughs> at this one escarpment with their regular camping spot. And they reg- not every time, but they regularly heard these bellowing calls. They never felt threatened, but it was always a bit strange. They could never work out what this animal was. But um, uh, Bernard O'Reilly, the, who, who wrote the, the book Green Mountains and Cullen Benbong, he um, described that he had often been followed by an animal walking along the horse trail through the rainforest and, uh, and he'd always go back trying to see what it was but never could see it. So, uh, so that was the first indication that we had some unknown animal, that, you know, because I was positive no such animal that could exist because I'd read every book on, on uh, nature and, you know, all the, f- the books on the identification of plants and animals and everything. And I was positive that nothing could possibly exist until this happened. And then in 1975, we had the, uh, I, I encountered those incredible roars. And then it was a couple of years later that, that Percy Window, who was the, the, the head ranger from Springbrook on the Gold Coast, doing what we mainly did in, as a national park ranger, which was basically keeping the tracks open and Taking an axe and cutting down, cutting uh, uh, to pieces any any tree that had fallen across the track, which happens regularly in rainforest. And he was doing that, and he heard these gruntings, and he went off to see what was grunting, creeping through the forest, because he, you know, is real bushman, and uh, uh, thinking it was a pig or something. Like he, he'd never heard any sound like it, and and then he suddenly found himself face to face, only about three or four meters away, with an animal that looked very much like a, a, a bipedal gorilla. Uh, I had no idea what the name, what this animal was. He was in absolute shock. He just stood there looking at it for about 10 minutes, axe in hand, and this animal just, just calmly looked at him. He described it having a, a crested head, like a sagittal crest, like a, go, a gorilla, 
had a gorilla-like face with a black shiny skin, bare skin on the face, and yellow eyes, and a, a really large and powerful body, an animal two metres or so in height, and about a metre across the shoulders, huge, powerful animal just standing there with, with feet like a gorilla and hands like a, like a person or a gorilla, more like a gorilla, but more bipedal, and because he'd never heard of such an animal. And then eventually it walked off. It had a very unusual method of moving, and uh, he went back to the ranger's quarters, and a good friend of mine, my best mate for many years, another ranger by the name of um, uh, David Duncan, D- David John Duncan, um, he he was a uh, you know ex expert at the environment. Uh, we met at university and uh, <laughs> uh, Griffith University, but he had already worked for years at um, for the national parks, and he'd been sent by head off office to, to look at all areas that were going to be proclaimed national parks to and give a report uh, as to as to whether they're, they're worthwhile to be included in the national park estate. So he worked with Kyle Lupus uh, on in the uh, in the uh, Great Barrier Reef on turtles and stuff, uh, worked for many years. And so he was, he described how the head ranger arrived white as a ghost because he was stationed up there at the time. Uh, and, and the head ranger gave him a detailed description of what he just encountered. Uh, and then they relayed that information to the head office, National Parks in, in Brisbane, and they were told, well, keep it quiet. We don't want anyone. You've obviously discovered a, a new species of probably megafauna, you know, some giant koala-like animal or something related to koalas or, or something, not a kangaroo, something that's more of a koala-like body shape. And uh, we better keep it quiet because the last thing we need is is some hunters go in trying to bag themselves a, <laughs> a trophy. Mm. And so the National Parks, some members of the National Parks knew about it, including this um, David uh, Duncan, who, um, who was a great mate of mine. And... Uh, and then at around about the same time, uh, a group of uh, universities, sorry, high school students from the Southport School, private school that's been there for over 100 years, I think, uh, they, uh, they had a outing to a Springbrook to a, a, a camp, a youth camp, and which still exists. And most of the boys and one or two of the teachers observed a gorilla-like animal resting on the grass in the sunshine um, near the edge of the forest, and they looked at it with binoculars, and they were astounded that he was an animal none had ever even heard of, and uh, uh, and uh, they went off. It went off into the forest, so they went to follow it. The, the teacher led the group of students to see if they could get another look at this or a photograph of this amazing animal. And it had been standing beside a flowering shrub on the edge of the rainforest, uh, and the shrub came to their to its hips. And when they walked up to it, they discovered that the shrub was as high as the the, the, the boys, and these are sort of high school students, the, the, the heads of the people. And so they realised it was a really big animal. And then they went into the forest, and then the, the students that had stayed at the at the lodge, um, they saw it come out of the forest because uh, it, it was watching the people going in. So it came out, walked along the grass, and then back into the forest further along. And then later on that night... It was around the uh, the lodge. Um, it pulled up some sh- shrubs and things and thumped on the walls and what have you. Once again, no doubt, a young male doing exactly what had happened at our ranger's quarters in 1971. So this is about 1977 or 78, I think. 
And uh, one of the boys, who later became the youngest senator in the Queensland government, Bill O'Chee, mm-hmm. he he uh, um, um, wrote uh, an article about what what had happened in the in the school newspaper. Uh, but the headmaster wouldn't allow it because it, he didn't believe it could possibly have happened. Uh, so then he was so, so upset that that um, no one wanted to hear the, the amazing uh, discovery they'd made, um, which all the students and the teachers agreed to because they'd all, all seen it. Um, so he contacted the Gold Coast Bulletin and they published it. That's right. So uh, And once again, we had no name for the animal. Uh, uh, and often it was described in the Gold Coast Bulletin as a bunyip. And there have been reports in the Gold Coast Bulletin because what's now a suburban Gold Coast uh, was all vast um, wetlands, swamps, uh, and the bunyip was an animal that was well known to live in these swamps uh, and it had a really powerful bellowing call. That wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, heard very often, but when you did hear it, um, you knew it was sort of almost like it was seasonal. It was only heard late at night, but some loud bellowing call it was very well known as the uh, uh, the burly bunyip. And then there'd been reports in in the newspapers, uh, even when I was growing. I grew up partly on the Gold Coast, and uh, in the uh, 1950s and 1960s, and uh, there were occasional reports. But I was very sceptical. I, I couldn't really believe there was something really unknown that we hadn't found. I was positive we'd found everything. Uh, and I was always surprised when they'd discover a new frog or a lizard or something because I was positive everything must have been discovered by now. Then in 1990... Sorry, 1973, uh, uh, I headed off to New Guinea and spent one and a half years studying the fauna and flora of New Guinea and living with, with um, tribal people that had never seen uh, an outsider before and that were totally traditional, had had um, bamboo knives and stone axes and, and I spent a lot of time living amongst such people and also um, living and working amongst the uh, ecologists at the Wow Ecology Centre um, in, in the Owen Stanley Mountains, halfway between Port, Macqu- Port Moresby and Ley. Uh, and we're on expeditions, like we'd be on three-month expeditions into the rainforest, like they've never been zoologically examined. And uh, this is in 1974. And... Uh, climbed the highest peaks of the ranges, etc. on like expeditions that would take up to four days to get there and back again. Groups, of, you know, groups of us and would have carriers carrying all our scientific equipment. Great expeditions. And uh, and I, on, on, and in nine months I spent on one um, Mount Missum uh, in the Wow Valley. Uh, these are high altitude mountains um, dominated in, in undisturbed uh, uh, Podocarpus rainforests and uh, at higher altitudes and, and uh, uh, Antarctic beach rainforests and Pandanus rainforests, all kinds of fabulous down to lowland tropical rainforests. Uh, an ornithologist, uh, botanist and I um, we spent a lot of time together. I was mainly bird watching, studying the birds of paradise in particular, but all the birds and mammals, spotlighting at night and stuff, camped out in the, in the rainforest and uh, uh, and many occasions, several occasions, we heard this incredible bellowing roaring from an animal that was unknown to science. And I used to try to follow it through the forests. You could walk around the rainforest there, mature forest, you can walk around. There's not all that much undergrowth. It's leaf litter and a few ferns and seedlings and stuff. But you can you can move 
um, across the country through these rainforests. Uh, you, you've got to be a real bushman. You've got to know the environment. And, uh, uh, and I'd try to follow this animal. I could never catch up with it as it roared and bellowed ahead of me, but it was like there's no animal like it. And I always thought it sounded a bit primate-like, but it was a complete mystery like it. You know, how could there be something in that? Even in those remote forests, you wouldn't expect there was something large living there. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then back in Australia uh, in 1978, living in my house on Tambourine Mountain, uh, one night I heard the bellowings, somewhat similar to the calls I'd heard in New Guinea, uh, of, of, a, of an animal that bellowed um, for a, a good five minutes. I mean, it produced maybe, you know, a, a 90 to 100 of these great bellowing roars, sort of sounding like, yee, 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 you know, powerful things. And three dingoes were howling, and, and you could tell that this animal was massive. And then that's when I really was forced to believe that, that these things are real because I could actually hear one, you know, even though I'd heard them once before. And then and then in 19... When I moved, in, we moved in 1995 to, North, to Northern South Wales, rented a house in a very remote area with a three-kilometre dr- driveway up into the... up into undisturbed forest. And, uh, <clears throat> and I spent a lot of time studying the plants and animals in those communities. And I was mainly working as an environmental consultant doing fauna and flora surveys, ecological assessments, and doing my radio show that's been running for um, 25, starting the 25th year, a wildlife identification radio show for, show for um, ABC North Coast local radio. It just goes for 10 or 15 minutes. And we talk about different species of animals. People phone in and report what they've seen or ask for identifications. And it's, it's, every, it's every Saturday morning at about 6.40. You can listen to it on the internet ABC North Coast, New South Wales local radio, every Saturday morning throughout the year, pretty much. So anyway, I'd gone outside for a call of nature, uh, and I was startled by hearing a uh, an incredible shout, and I thought, my God, it sounds like someone's lost in the bush. And I was at the, this house was a very remote house that had been built, you know, only a decade or something before by someone quite wealthy who wanted to live in a, in a remote location on, on a ridgetop in the forest uh, and then and then uh, had sold it. And then the owners that had bought it was owned by the chief medical officer in Australia for his son, uh, and hundreds of acres. And, uh, and then he wanted to travel, so we were able to rent this house. And it was no trouble, and it was a... There's a good three-kilometre driveway into the house, but a very remote house. And uh, and so behind the the house, not too far away, this incredible shout came, and uh, I thought at first it must be somebody lost, though what they'd be doing wandering around at three in the morning in a in a pitch-black night, but, but were very clear, starry night, very quiet night. Uh, this series of calls started up, which was an enormous series of, of barks in groups of three. So I went like, Aru, Aru, Aru. And then it would gurgle. Luh, 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 luh. And then Aru, Aru, Aru. And then luh, 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 luh. Like, I mean, like no other animal. went for about five minutes. And interestingly enough, uh, I was <laughs> uh, we had some good friends come to visit. Uh, it was one of our daughter's birthday parties. And all their school friends and their parents came. She was walking. The, the mother and son were walking up the the up the road 
to our house because they had an old car and they were frightened it was a bit steep and they mightn't be able to make it up this steep road, even though it was concreted. Uh, they decided to leave the car behind and walk up. It's only about a kilometre. And uh, they're all, you know, country people. And so uh, about halfway up, they suddenly saw what they thought was one of the children coming down from the house, which is still about a kilometre away, and running downhill cut, dressed in dark clothing. And they thought, my God, what a bush kid. Yeah, look, at a, a child about the size of a 12-year-old, roughly, and, and running downhill just like a person running downhill, swinging their arms. Uh, and then they were surprised to see he wasn't running down the concrete road. Um, he was running through the, the bush beside the road, and it's very open. It was open woodland, open eucalypt forest with kangaroo grass, so you could see clearly. There was very few in the way, little way of shrubs or anything, uh, and just all kangaroo grass under a canopy of, of gum trees. And uh, he came running down to them, and then it, when it was something like 10 metres away, uh, it stopped and they suddenly realised it wasn't a child at all. It was like a chimpanzee. Uh, in fact, they, they must have encountered an Imbinji or, or, or Janjadi, as they're also known. Yeah. And uh, it, it dropped onto its four legs and walked just like a chimpanzee uh, about 10 metres across the little... They were at a little flat area where the road had a hairpin bent. And it walked past them about only at 10 metres away with a round head and a round bottom, like no tail and on four legs. Mm. And then it went, continued down the steep slope where it, uh, on the other side of this little ridge top when it got up onto its hind legs and ran down. And, and then years later in this locality, I found a whole bunch of footprints, like little children's footprints in the bush um, where, where what looked like little children had been running back and forth in a muddy little patch of mud on, on, on a rather muddy track and, and scooping handfuls of mud out and onto throwing them on the ground and leaving sort of like little hand prints or, or knuckle prints and, uh, uh, and, and little footprints um, with very much like a, a child's. Uh, but, but then, and a little stick structure, a little stick tripod, only, um, you know, about... Uh, about 15 centimetres, but no, about 30 centimetres high or so. Uh, and then whoever had been playing in the mud had left no footprints on the whole rest of the muddy track, which had only had footprints of, say, dingoes and and, uh, and, and swamp wallabies and, and brush turkeys and pigeons and what have you. Uh, and it also hadn't bothered to um, go down and wash their hands after playing in the mud or their feet in a pool of water that was within, you know, a metre or two of these footprints. And yet there was no no tracks at all down to the, the little short muddy slope, semi-grassy, semi-muddy, and certainly hadn't disturbed the, the water at all. And it was all fairly recent. So I photographed those and, yeah, very unusual. Um, so there the... Uh, uh, the reports of, of Junjudis or Nimbinjis, uh, National Park Ranger told me working on, on the south side of Wollumbin on Mount Warning, and one of the rangers saw one of these um, Nimbinjis walk across the, the track and it looked just like a sort of a walking chimpanzee nearest they'd seen. And uh, and then uh, they believed they'd um, urinated on their on their boxes of working gear, you know, the tools <laughs> and they'd leave there. On this, while they're repairing the tracks after that uh, uh, last large rain event uh, uh, three or four years ago now. And also, they found plaited hair uh, placed across the, uh, the, the 
their um, boxes of tools and things that left beside the track. And he put these down to um, Nimbinjis telling them that, you know, they're interfering, they're trespassing on their territory. So whether these things actually exist, who can tell? <laughs> That's very true. I published a book, which I still have a few copies of, on Australian cryptozoology. Uh, you'd have to contact me, just self-publish them. I've got very few. But also I I, uh, I actually, I'm the only person that has actually had a scientific study on cryptozoology published and uh, uh, it was published by the Royal Zoological Society of New South Wales in 2017 in their scientific journal, Australian Zoologist. And, and in, in that edition, they're interested in dangerous ideas in zoology. <laughs> so, I, um, so I turned up to the annual um, zoological forum, 2013 it was actually held, uh, and in front of a, the top Australian zoologists, you know, there was like a hundred of them at the Australian Museum, and uh, and and there was uh, twenty or so uh, presenters showing PowerPoint presentations of their studies uh, <laughs> um, that had to do with dangerous ideas in zoology, uh, and so then it was my turn, and uh, so I said, if you think you've seen some presentations on dangerous ideas in zoology. Why did you see my presentation? <laughs> that uh, and it was published. Uh, that they, I was, I was awarded the bravest presentation <laughs> to say that we have, and showing, um, showing uh, a plaster cast footprint of a yowie and a, uh, and also a couple of skulls of what were probably calves that that would be. I call them bunyip skulls because they're some unknown. The unidentified yeah. skulls that I presented to the yeah. to um, uh, to the University of New South Wales, and uh, uh, and I think they were carved skulls, most likely, and uh, they were just cavity. They were just the brain cases, you know, yeah. like the, the most of the, f- the face are disintegrated. It's been found by farmers on the ground, and uh, uh, years earlier, and uh, but uh, and also illustrations uh, of of. Uh, uh, that listeners to my radio show, of which is what we don't really know, thirty, forty thousand, or something, maybe more. I think I was told once it was eighty thousand, because then you know, people have grown up listening to me it's yes. every week of the year, live <laughs> to air, and everyone can phone up and talk what they've described. And so I've had thousands of phone calls, and and uh, uh, and uh, I've I've. We've identified about 400 different species of animals, and so I, I made a. It's one of the earliest crypt, uh, citizen science studies where I recorded the name of the of the person. Often only their per, first name, because much of the time it was just on live to air, and they just say their first name and where they're from. But then their name and the locality and the description of the animal and the behaviour and the vocalisations and you know, the identification that I'd made of it, because I can identify all these species, mm. and. Uh, uh, from doing fauna and flora surveys and working at the National Park Range and working in wildlife parks. I worked at Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary and various others, and um, uh, David Flays, West Burley. And, you know, I presented this information, and, uh, and of course, the, the zoologists so assembled, assembled could ask me questions and what have you. Uh, and and they they loved the presentation because they said they've all received these reports, but I was the first person to ever yeah. actually collate them. And, and so they published this scientific study, which is called uh, uh, Citizen Science and Cryptozoology, Results of 
18 years of of uh, of data from from a, a wildlife talkback, a program that had been running for about 15 years, I think, at that time, because this is about a decade ago, <laughs> and. Um, uh, uh, and yeah, they said they've all received those reports, and, and but no one's ever looked into them. So, so that 2017 edition, which is available online, you have to buy it, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, 2017 uh, uh, Dangerous Ideas in Zoology edition is one of the most interesting books because um, because there's all kinds of you know zoology. Everything zoology, you know, zoology covers everything because you know it's a study of animals, yeah. and we're all animals, and the history of life is a study of animals and plants, of course, uh, and uh, uh, and and so there's all kinds of wonderful ideas in, in dangerous ideas in zoology relating to it all relates, of course, to humanity, of course, to how we see the world, and how we survive. Because the study of zoology is like the study of everything. It interrelates, of course. How do we get our hands on that? If we wanted to buy either your book or that paper, I would love to, for example. Yeah. So, so, and so but I, I can also, and I also have, I can also send you um, uh, copies of the scientific paper, uh, and uh, 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 by email, and uh, also sections of the book, because uh, I'm always interested in in information. And see, I think what. What we really need to do to, to advance in this field, uh, we really need all the researchers to gather together, not don't need to physically gather together together on the internet and uh, and and develop a format to record all of these um, reports that they've received. so and, and like any report, uh, you know it would have to be, in chronological order, so it has to have the, the you know the approximate date or the actual date and the location, and and the description of the animal and 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 the the um the the um the name of the witness <laughs> if they say want to be named names of witnesses are less important. Most important is that the dates and times and whether or any or behaviour or vocalisations, and and eventually. Because of all the thousands of reports that are being received, as you said earlier, um, we'd have a great deal of data. And it doesn't matter if there's fabrications or errors or misidentifications because because uh, the only thing that we're interested in is the data. So if you gather the data and you find that the reports are, are all from sites people suffering from psychoses, say, for instance, <laughs> then we can say, oh, yes, no, it's um, it's mythical. The animal doesn't exist. Every, everyone has ever seen this report is, has, is on, you know, has mental health problems and is on medication, say. <laughs> that could be one interpretation. If there isn't any sign of that, all these people uh, are actually just normal community members, as I've always found. They're always farmers or policemen or national park rangers, I've got reports by zoologists and zookeepers who know their animals and have encountered uh, these amazing animals. Uh, <coughs> uh, and so then we can say, well, there's certainly anecdotal evidence for the existence of these animals. And then that data will show us when they've been seen and, and what's been seen, you know, and what behaviour has been recorded. And that'll give us a really good, a really good um, a picture of what's going on. And and I think like many people think, oh, I hope the um, you know no one discovers it, so it's always a mystery. But I think the opposite is true. It's like any 
scientific fact. It's like global warming or, or, or the pandemic or anything. You need science. You don't you need things to be a mystery. We don't need to have the reason for COVID-19 as a mystery or whatever, so it makes it more interesting or something. No, it's, it's to do with survival. We need, we need strong data. And so we need, we need really information on these animals because they're not aggressive. We know they're, they're not dangerous because if they ate us, we'd know all about them, of course, like we know about crocodiles and sharks and dingoes and things. You know? So we, you know, and they're big, scary animals and they're rare, but they don't appear to um, attack people. And, and one of the most interesting reports I had recently um, was a gentleman um, in Brisbane who lives in the Gap, and he contacted me and gave me a very detailed account. This is the most recent report that I've received, because <laughs> I only receive three or four reports a year. But I don't spend, this is directly to me, and I don't go searching for reports. I hardly, <laughs> I'm involved in other matters, and uh, 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 as most of us are. And so, you know, and I just help researchers. Researchers regularly contact me, as they have done right for the last, like, 25 years. Yeah. Uh, 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 Rex and Heather Gilroy, Dean Harrison, uh, Tony, Tony Healy, Paul Cropper. I've known them um, uh, for maybe 30 years or, or 25 years or whatever it's been um, for some of them. Uh, <laughs> and 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 uh, and I take information from anybody. But so anyway, and then often this information comes from one of them, like Dean Harrison and Australian mm-hmm. Yowie Research, who contacted me, you know, before he set up his um, Australian Yowie Research website. And in fact, he's got videos of me describing pretty much what I'm saying now. Yes. Um, what I knew then, whatever that was, 25 years ago or 20 <laughs> years ago or something. Australian Yowie Research is a great place to go for that because we 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 we've got so many we've got such a huge database now of reports. Exactly. Um, yes. I would encourage everyone to report to Australian Yowie Research, and that way we've got a kind of a central location for for all of that information. Yeah, that's that's right, and that and that's why that's it, that's so important to do. And like the, like in any field, there are animosities and competition or whatever, you know. So yeah. obviously you've got skeptics um, who are dedicated to prove that it's all a it's all a fabrication, there's no possible reality because they can't imagine it's beyond their comprehension to believe such a thing could be real. Um, and and then you've got uh, you've got other researchers that like to keep their information to themselves. Well, fair enough. There, anyone's allowed to do anything, and and some researchers that don't believe the research by other researchers or whatever. Well, you'd find that in any in any field, in any scientific field, you yeah. know. Yeah. And what science is about, the general public have this fanciful idea of of scientists as being like business people. So they're all in direct competition, and so it's it's global, it's climate sciences. That are making out global warming's real because they're after they're after money, just like business people are after money or something. Rather, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and the scientists, the whole scientific discipline, has to be completely unbiased. And you simply look at all the evidence, and then you you um, you work out what's the most logical explanation. And then every other scientist, their 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 whole reason for existence is to disprove. Science works well by disproving things, you know. So. You say that, um, you know, as originally believed, uh, Newton believed that he brought forth the theory that gravity sucks, you know, <laughs> and uh, and then other scientists proved, no, it doesn't actually suck. It's gravity's something to do with uh, with movement, a whole array of physical properties. Yeah. 
So, so anyway, so it doesn't matter what field you're working in. Uh, the idea of the science is to try to disprove. And if you can't disprove it, then that helps to prove that it's a reality. So the idea, you get all this data and anything. Now, how can we try to disprove this data logically? You know, so uh, no doubt about it, it's all hallucinations or it's or it's all fabrications, you know, or, or um, no, there's no sign of fabrications or, or, or if there are some fabrications, it doesn't matter because that, <laughs> that'll get... Because if if the if you look at the reports and you also notice a lot of um, you know um, dragon and 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 uh, unicorn sightings as well mixed in with it, <laughs> then you could say, oh, no doubt about it. This is this is some sort of mythological situation. But if it's purely zoological, like all the reports are all from people that have seen an animal in the bush, then it must be zoological, which means there's an animal there. Now, other people, of course, um, believe in uh, a, a paranormal. Um, situations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it could be some animal that pops in from another dimension. Uh, and I, I always say, well, you can rule that out simply because, um, you know, we're, we're trying to deal with real data. So if you're, um, say, in the, you're a detective in, in the police force and uh, and you can find no evidence of, of the individual that, that's, that's committed, suspected of committed a crime... Um, there's, there's no physical evidence they can come up with, so the only explanation is they popped in from another dimension, <laughs> or or they're paranormal in some way, or they're alien or something or other. Like you know, they can't be described in normal, down to earth um, uh, comprehensions. Then um, you know that would be laughed out of the police force, you know. So <laughs> the same thing applies. You might believe that. Oh, they can pop in from one dimension to another, but that's no kind of an explanation. You can believe the moon's made of green cheese. You can believe whatever <laughs> you like. It's nothing to do with reality, but you can go off on your own and believe anything you like, as we can. You know, we've got the yeah. freedom to do that. You tend to not end up with too many friends or relatives or whatever. <laughs> or... Yeah, so and that applies to cryptozoology as well. So, And as I always say, well, if they're metaphysical beings, which means what? We don't even, there's no explanation for it, you know. We only know of one reality and there might be other dimensions, but we don't see much in the way of evidence of it in our day-to-day lives, but you can bump into a, a Yowie in a day-to-day, you know, bushwalk. And uh, and uh, 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 so, and if they were interdimensional, why don't they pop up in the, in the middle of shopping malls, um, you know, in the standing in line for the McDonald's or the KFCs or something because <laughs> if they're metaphysical or from another dimension, they could pop up anywhere. Why do they only pop up in the bush and give you a fright? You know? <laughs> but anyway, and I did forget to mention I was um, this gentleman that lives in, in the Gap. Um, when COVID-19 first struck and they had the, the lockdowns and you weren't allowed to travel more than five, five minutes or something or five kilometres or whatever it was for, for a recreation, he lived near... Um, uh, the, the uh, national park walking tracks, and so he'd go <clears throat> after work for a walk up one of these walking tracks, and while and it with no one else around, like he'd noticed that the, there was never any cars in the car park anymore. But he'd there and he'd go for a walk, and he heard um, rocks being broken or whacked together or something on a creek bed. So he walked up the creek because he thought obviously it's kids or something or other. It must be people because he hadn't much knowledge of Yowies or believed in such things could exist. 
And uh, so he was walking through the like the rainforest beside the rocky creek. It was like a small rocky creek with water running down the centre of it, but mainly all big boulders, basalt boulders probably. And um, uh, and then when he got close to this sound, of every now and then he'd hear a crack as if someone's throwing a rock or something, whacking two rocks together. So he popped his head out, and only about 20 metres away, um, he saw a person standing, um, picking up a big rock, and then throwing it down. And he was astounded that this person was covered entirely in like brown hair, and about the size and shape of a normal person when seen from the back. And, and he was thinking, who on earth could this person be? Why, why is there a, a man standing here covered in covered in hair, wearing no clothes and just covered in hair and uh, and throwing, picking up a rock and throwing it down repeatedly. And after watching it for a, you know, a minute or so, this individual began, turned around to see if it's being observed and immediately saw um, the witness and then started vocalising, but not with a, a human voice. It made very unusual chirping noises, almost like the sound you'd hear from a bird, as if it was, it was, it seemed to be imitating uh, a bird's alarm call. Because you know, if, if you live in the bush or know birds, whenever a hawk or a goanna or a carpet python turns up, all the birds start giving their their uh, 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 alarm calls that says snake, snake, or goanna, or, or hawk, or owl, and um, and so. It seemed to be imitating the, um, the the alarm calls that the birds use, which is an interesting thing. In it, it didn't use its own vocalizations. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then this gentleman, the witness, who's like in his mid thirties from memory, always lived in the gap, grew up there, knew the walking tracks like the back of his hand, was shocked to see that this individual wasn't an adult; it was a child because the adult then stood up. <laughs> and it it was much larger and more powerfully built and was like a big gorilla-like animal, uh, and it bellowed at him. Right. <laughs> and the witness turned and ran for his life. Yes. <laughs> and, and I said to the witness, you didn't need to run. You could have advanced towards it and seen what it does. Because they don't kill people, and we know they kill people. We don't. They kill people because if it had killed him, say, say he's way off, on, he's kilometres away on this walking track from the car park. If it had killed him, um, his family would have alerted the police that he's he's he hasn't returned home, and that he mainly goes to this national park. They would have gone to the national park and found his car. Think, oh my God, and if he's gone lost. So then they would have started searching the national parks and maybe found his footprints in the mud or whatever and eventually found his battered body. And we'd know immediately that some enormous, great, powerful animal had torn somebody to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> but that's never happened. Yeah. So they, don't, they must know, having lived for thousands of years with Aboriginal people and the Indigenous Australians were the, were the greatest hunters on earth. You know, you can imagine that, as all, in, as all hunter-gatherers were, and they were agriculturalists as well, of course. And they had trained dingoes. If a yowie attacked a person, the people would hunt it down, <laughs> um, yeah. or would be very aggressive to the next one they met. Uh, and so the the yowies uh, probably well know that you don't interfere with people because you have to look at their 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 side of of the situation. Um, if you grow up as a yowie, probably in a little yowie family with very much like 
people with a father and mother and maybe a sibling uh, and probably spend years living just like um, orangutans do, for instance, if there's a gigantopithecus, and then they would have some form of communication towards and towards each other. Um, who knows how how complicated it would be? <laughs> Maybe quite complicated, but but anyway, the parents of the offspring would probably teach the young because these are fairly intelligent animals. One would imagine that. Um, if you come across other yowies, you'd run for your life, you know, because they're probably territorial. And if, say, the young male um, teenager would well know that another yowie family they lives on the next mountain range. And if you if you ever encounter, you know, the, the dominant male, the father of that fa- yowie family, he'll give you a good bashing. <laughs> Make sure you don't you don't <laughs> enter his territory, and so you'll just run for your life if you see him. They must be watching humans as well because there's often reports of them of watching people. Uh, and so they would regard humans as potentially dangerous predators. Uh, and they know that unlike themselves, these um these other sort of, you might call them hairless yowies um, or plains country or flatland yowies, um, they live in large numbers um, they move very quickly. They're very dangerous. They live with big animals, you know, like horses and cows, which they eat, and they and they have all kinds of amazing um, tools, which can, like including flashing lights and you know and, and rumbling bloody vehicles and what have you. And uh, if you see one of them, just get 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 out of the place as quickly as possible, because if you see if you encounter somebody, if you encounter one of these people. And they run off. Um, you wouldn't take it that they're running off because they're scared of you. They might be running off to get to get to get uh, others in <laughs> to come hunt you. <laughs> and and they know that we're not predators because you know they watch kangaroos and kangaroos are prey animals. They're standing around looking, and if there's anything any disturbance, they go for their lives. But with people, they notice if they hear anything, the people come running to see what's going on. So that shows you you're a pred- They're a predator. So that's why they'd avoid people because, um, you know, people are a big frightening animal. It's not as big as them, but very scary because um, they're very fast, especially in their, with their with their tools like their vehicles, bicycles or motorbikes. You know, they're very loud and uh, and very scary. So, you know, I think that's why we don't have much to do with Yowies because they're scared the hell of us yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> because there's so many of us and we make such a lot of noise and we act like... We're the nastiest things around, like you know. <laughs> we probably <laughs> are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. Well, there's no doubt that we're the, the dominant predator on on the planet. Yeah. And uh, and anything that encounters us knows that. <laughs> yeah. If you see one running away, it might be just running to get reinforcements. Yeah, exactly. Gary, it's really interesting that um, you you mentioned the the imitating a, a bird alarm call. And yeah. and the parent, perhaps the possible adult, standing up and bellowing. We had an actually almost identical situation in. I don't know if you got, listened to the interview that I did with for AYR at Bellbird Grove in outside Brisbane. Um, but it oh. was exactly the same situation that this man happened upon uh, what we think now was a juvenile splashing around in a creek bed, clucking yeah. rocks. And he was walking up the creek bed, not up the trail. So he he surprised the the creature. The, the the creature turns its head and pursed its lips, 
And so it seemed to be he thought it was making some kind of sound, like a kissy sound perhaps, but he, he yes. couldn't hear it from where he was, but he saw the, the facial, the face move. Yes. And then immediately an enormous adult steps down from the bank onto the creek bed and roars at this guy. Yeah, now that's the same account because Dean has, has, has um, for, for decades sent me um, really interesting reports because many of the reports you've received have been on other animals um, and uh, and also years ago lots of you know audio recordings which I then identify mm, uh, yes and so and Dean actually sent me that and then also the contact number so I often if I if I uh, have the opportunity I contact the the primary witness and uh, have discussions and so the, yeah so that's where I came from that one oh, and I, I may have already seen it what what you've been doing uh, is excellent. Um, it's really valuable valuable work, uh, and uh, and that's and I've always said, look, I work with everybody. I mean, uh, I don't spend much time researching it, <laughs> uh, but um, I just help other people uh, uh, with their information, and and you know, and I've published these books, and uh, I've got a Facebook site which I don't put much on it called Australian Cryptozoology Gary Opert. And I've got a my email address is garyopet at gmail dot com, but um, so I'm always interested in in reports. I've got a great many reports that um, you haven't published, mainly because I simply don't have the time. You know, I get reports. I've got them all on the computer in their files, but uh, it takes a lot of time to actually. Uh, you know, publish the information. Yes, yes. Well, uh, if there's anyone you'd like me to actually interview for you, I'm more than happy to do that and send it to you. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and, okay, so we, we better leave it there, I guess. Okay. It's too long as it is. Gary, it's such an honour to talk to you and to listen to all of that amazing information. I, f- I feel like I've had a history lesson and a zoology lesson and it's just been absolutely fascinating. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm, 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 thank you very much. Yeah, I've, I've um, devoted quite a bit of time and effort into the, the study. I mean, you know, I mainly work on other animals. Um, <clears throat> this radio program, I can identify every mammal, bird, reptile, amphibian, or invertebrate from people's descriptions You're or amazing. their calls or whatever. <laughs> and very few people that have been doing that, and I've been doing that for a little bit. Start on the 22nd of January will be the beginning of the 25th year. Uh, but it only runs for 10 or 15 minutes. So, yeah, if you get a chance, listen to ABC North I Coast will. Local Radio. I and, will. Uh, yeah, and you can, re- re- uh, you can contact me on Gary Opet, G-A-R-Y-O-P-I-T, at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I can always happy to receive reports or to send them on to others or whatever, whoever, whoever needs it, or to, to give a bit of advice. And, uh, uh, and uh, I want to congratulate... Um, your good selves and and uh, and all other researchers and the wonderful work that they've been undertaking in this fascinating uh, scientific field. Thank you so much, Gary. I uh, you are a very generous man with your time, and when anyone uh, needs some help identifying animals, uh, birds, whatever, you're you're very generous with your time. So, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Okay, all the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gary Opet, Australian wildlife expert and wildlife talkback radio broadcaster. 
host of the long-running ABC North Coast local radio show in New South Wales. Remember, if you've had a sighting, whether it be a Yowie, a Junjadi, Dogman or any other cryptid creature or something in the paranormal realm or UFO related, I would love to talk to you and the Yowie Central listeners, I'm sure, would love to hear your story. Get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. Well, that's all for today, my friends. Yowie Central will be back next Wednesday, so I'll catch you then. Stay safe. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. This is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.